Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Back in the courtyard, perfectly fine weather. Beautiful, beautiful fall evening out here, Matt. Uh, on the uh, Coming off the back of a wedding weekend, we've been hyping it up on this show forever. The wedding actually finally happened. We got Jackson married. He did it. He walked, well, he didn't walk down the aisle. I guess technically he did, but any, bef- way before his bride. Uh, yes, he got married. They said the I do's, did the whole kissy thing, and then uh, we had a we had a party afterwards, and it was uh, it was a whole lot of fun. It was a great wedding. Um, you know, seeing little littlest Willow Bro uh, off to his honeymoon, where he is currently uh, enjoying probably eighty ish degree weather and sun and some sea breeze and on the uh, on the place that nobody's ever heard of to take a vacation, which would be the island of Maui. Yeah, right? no, no one's ever been to Maui on a honeymoon before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's probably having an excellent time. I actually think he was hitting up uh, he was hitting up a little upland winery that they have there today, um, and it seems like they're having just a great time. So. They are. They even got they even got to meet a winery cat, which was really fun for them. Uh, the winery cat's the best cat. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I think they're having a great time. Regardless, it was an incredibly fun party this past weekend. We're very, very happy that we could, you know, finally get one wedding down. Still, <laughs> one, one to more to go. Yeah. yeah. That, is, that would be mine. Whose is that? Yeah. That, that would be mine. Yes. Yeah. You're already married. You don't get another one. No, no, man. I think three would have just been too many. Um, <laughs> No, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Still got yours coming up in a few months, but we've got a little bit of time to rest and recoup, thankfully. Um, but yeah, definitely a very fun weekend and left me very happy that um, we did what we did and took a week off in order to build ourselves some production time runway. Absolutely. Uh, but we are still a week ahead. We are actually recording this the day episode eight comes out. Uh, so we're we're here on Wednesday recording a week ahead, which we haven't done a week ahead in a very long time. If so we it's get kind of nice. feisty, we might be able to have editing done on this like five days in advance of the Ooh, episode. Oh, man, doesn't that sound nice? Like, I don't know. Fingers crossed. Now that I've said it, it's probably not going to happen. But yeah, you don't jinx yourself about that. I it's, can't even remember it's the, the last same time thing where It's the same thing where we can't say that it's going to be a shorter episode than normal because then it ends up being three hours. So, yeah, we don't say that anymore after yeah. after the last two Not when I'm so. here. Yeah, not, not, when, not Ma- when Max is here. <laughs> and uh, okay, so introducing himself for the third time this season, Maximum Nichols, welcome back. Thank you for joining us uh, for the Sky City Temple. Uh, we've talked a lot this season with you about Twilight Princess, and uh, I know you you said you have more to say, so we thought, we thought uh, you know, we'll bring him back again instead of just Lyndon and I hanging out. We'll, we'll have Max on another episode, so happy to have you back, Max. Yeah, and it's, it's guests all the way down for the rest of the season after this. We have Max tonight, oh. and then we've got Josh and Cody the next two weeks, and then Mike to round it out. Yep, it's going to be great. Lots I wasn't of sure if you're going to get Josh and Cody this season because they just wanted uh, the end 
for themselves. Yeah, we we um we offered it up to them and they didn't really have the time to keep up with it, so they passed on the first bit of the season and we were just looking at the back stretch and brought it up again and they were like, "Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll hop in at the end." So, um yeah, they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be on. I think Cody's next week for the Twily Palace and then Josh is the week after for Hyrule Castle and the finale. So, it's going to be fun. So, Max yeah. Uh, it hasn't been that long since we caught up, obviously, like we had you on um, for Snow Peak, which was, you know, very recently. Um, but I'm curious if you had a chance to listen to the episode that we released today. I know it's very short notice. I haven't. Okay. I have no idea what you said in that episode. Matt, would you like to <laughs> clue Max into the crazy revelation that we had during the course of that episode? Yeah. And if you, you can cut this out if you want to, just for sake of brevity on the recording. But no, well, well just, uh, yeah. So leave, leave it in. Just sure. So Lyndon, Mike, and I all collectively decided that the Temple of Time was actually the most fun, best dungeon in the game. <laughs> more, what? more than Arbiter's Grounds or, uh, or Snow Peak. <laughs> Snow Peak. Yep. We it, it and was, you're, you're, you pulled my leg right now. I am not at all we, pulling your leg. You're not. Nope. That actually happened. Uh, um, no, it's like it, there was this weird thing that happened where as we were talking about the dungeon and kind of enumerating all of the things that we thought it was doing that were pretty interesting. Um, I don't know. We kind of all just sat back and thought, you know what? I actually think that that was that was it. That was the sweet spot um, for a few different reasons. I don't want to go into it too terribly much on here, but very interested to talk to you about it once you've had a chance to actually listen to the episode um, <laughs> and hear some of our thoughts about it. I know it's probably going to be an unpopular opinion overall. I mean, it, it's not a bad dungeon and it does some things differently than other ones. And if those different things are to your tastes, I can see why it'd be someone's favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was it was a lot of fun. We enjoyed it quite a bit. Um but we've already talked about Temple of Time last week. So, uh you want to we've got a we've got an interesting section here. So, something you and I Lyndon have been talking a lot about over the last couple of weeks is yeah. the in-between sections being sparse uh, to non-existent. And we, that is not the case this yeah, week. Yeah, we definitely definitely are in for a, a little changing of gears here, which I think is going to make for some some very interesting conversation. I'm really excited to get into it. Uh, before we do housekeeping and then get into the Sacred Realms rundown, though, Max, I, I have to ask, you as a lifelong Zelda fan um, are living in a very interesting time with all the rest of us Zelda fans right now, uh, in which we have 100% official confirmation of the fact that a movie is being made based on this property and mm. yeah um and uh you know obviously don't want to get into it too terribly much just because there's very little that we actually know about it um but i am curious to hear your first blush thoughts um especially given that we've all had years and years and years to think about like well how how <laughs> could they do that you know yeah i mean i i'm pessimistic like i don't think it's gonna be good but uh, I think it'll be fine, probably, kind of like the Mario movie. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Zelda is very well suited to being a movie, at least not the things that I like about Zelda, which is mostly a sense of exploration and discovery and a feeling of being smart because you solve puzzles. like That kind of stuff Like it's hard to translate to a movie. Uh, and I, I also am probably going to be, you know, it's going to be impossible for them to handle the character of Link in any way that doesn't rub half the fandom the wrong way. Um, 
no matter what they do. Like that's just a doomed task for them. I feel quite sorry for them. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was encouraged when I saw someone unearth a tweet from the director of the movie, Wes Ball. Um, you know, he's, he's the only thing else he's really done was he directed the Maze Runner movies. Uh, but they did find a tweet from 2010, so 13 years ago, before he'd ever directed anything, where he talked about how he someday wanted to direct a Zelda movie. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's not just a here for the paycheck. He sounds like he's got some history with the series as a fan. Bringing in some, uh, at least some knowledge that might be helpful to fall back on as he's trying to tackle this truly like monumental <laughs> task. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I guess I, I've been thinking about because I'm also a little pessimistic about the idea of, of this project at all. Um, but it, for me, it was mostly centering on more like logistical things, one of which is definitely the portrayal of Link and how you do that. Um, but then also the difficulty of trying to make a live action movie feel authentically Zelda without, you know, feeling goofy and um, – you know, and then thinking about like, well, what, you know, what even, what flavor of Zelda could they even be leaning on for this? Um, lots of, lots of pitfalls, you know, I'm, I'm seeing. If they wanted to save money, they could go Zelda one and just do like low fantasy medieval. Yeah, they totally could. Yeah, that would be wandering around in caves <laughs> with, with a cross on your shield. Yeah, look, all they need to go down is to wherever Paramount filmed Star Trek, and then they have a bunch of cave sets that are generally dressed up and reused over and over again. So I'm sure they could make that happen. Yeah, you just you just turn around and film it from the opposite angle, and then it's a completely different part of the cave. Yeah, no. So, but it's interesting. I'd never thought about. Um, I hadn't really thought about the fact that so many people like the Zelda series for so many different reasons and the extent to which that might actually color your excitement for the project at all. Um, like I, I think with Mario, it's a bit of a simpler task in a lot of ways, right? Because the reason that people play Mario for the most part is fairly universal. It's, you know, fun platforming and goofy characters in a colorful world, right? And I feel like a lot of those are targets that are just easier and, and much more broad to be able to hit. Yeah, I, I think there's more. I, the one thing Zelda has going for it on that front, maybe even more than Mario, is that Zelda has encompassed so many different styles visually and tonally over yeah. the many years. Like it reinvents itself to a greater extent than Mario does, um, which means that there's a very broad definition of what Zelda is. And and you have a fandom that's sort of used to a little bit more variety there, right? Like maybe there's a little bit more yeah. forgiveness for a variation in, in tone and style. One thing that's worth noting, like kind of business wise, like Nintendo's goal here is to bring in big new audiences. They want to familiarize people who don't play their games with their characters via movies. So like they don't really, they're not targeting Zelda fans with this movie. They're, they're taking Zelda fans tickets as for granted. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's, you know, not necessarily for, for better or for worse, basically. Like, I don't have an inherent problem with that. Uh, but like, they're trying to go big tent. They want their characters to be the glue that binds together, like their movies, their games, their theme park, etc. Yeah, I, I think that I think that that is is a good thing in and of itself uh, the execution is is what's up for debate right I, I yeah i do think what's nice about that is that it basically precludes what i was almost sure nintendo was going to try and do if they're if the mario movie was successful which it definitely was um 
what I was worried was going to happen is that they were going to try and do the shared universe thing that's sort of <laughs> sort of vogue right oh, now. God, right? I would die if and, they tried to make a and, Nintendo connected universe. Yeah, <laughs> and that they were going to try and keep it all within kind of like a stylistic umbrella together. And then in you know seven years, we would have like a Super Smash, Smash Brothers Bros. movie. movie. <laughs> right? That, so. would, that would be horrible. They already did that. It was called Wreck-It Ralph. Ah, oh, that's true. Wreck-It Ralph was good. I liked Wreck-It Ralph. The first one. I never saw the second one. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. I, I, it was yeah. fun. Sure. Yeah. It was. <laughs> it was. Do, it was doing cheeky video game reference movie um, before that was really on the table, right? Yeah. So I do appreciate it for that. But sure. Anyway, we'll uh, see what happens. I'm not going to ask you to give us your fan casting, Max, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's going to be fun to see how that all unfolds. I do think it's interesting that Sony Entertainment is involved in the in the production. Which I, I think that that is that's a sentence that sounds really weird if you are primarily coming from the game side of things. Um, but when you when you factor in Sony Entertainment as just the massive brand that it is in, in the entertainment world generally, right? Um, in, in the realm of movie making, I, I think it does make a little bit more sense. It is still a little goofy when you just mm-hmm. say it like Nintendo and Sony teaming up to make a Zelda movie. <laughs> okay. I'm sure that that <laughs> sentence alone has uh, <laughs> Phil Spencer just rolling around in his bed at night, sweating bullets. There's, yeah. There's a weird little bit of like culture shock almost like, I, I get the same feeling when I see that, like, I'm watching an anime and it was like, oh, this anime is published by Square Enix. And it's like, oh, I, I sometimes forget that Square Enix has a huge arm of it that is about publishing anime. Uh, <laughs> Not Final like Fantasy. Half their yeah. business. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's kind of the same deal with, like, Sony and m- movies. Sony and does make great TVs, you know? though. I love Sony TVs. But anyway, <laughs> different division. Matt. Di- different digressing. Division. Totally the, digressing. The Legend of Zelda movie will play inherently better on Sony TVs <laughs> than <laughs> Samsung TVs. <laughs> Optimized for Sony television sets. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, it's been a fun little conversation. Of course, you know, we'll continue checking in as more news becomes available, which it probably won't for a very long time. Yeah, this is still a good ways away. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think we get a sequel to the Mario movie before this movie ever comes out. That is totally possible. Like I could kind of see that happening, but we'll see. All right, y'all, let's get into the housekeeping and then roll on into this episode. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. TIE Fighter. Woo, he's coming in low. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are uh, growing. We actually we got a, we picked up a few more this past month, Matt. Yay! Which is always fun, but uh, th- this list is getting somewhat respectful. 
respectably sized. Is, is it getting hard to manage for you for your reading comprehension, Lyndon? I w- what? No, I'm perfectly capable of reading all of these proper <laughs> nouns in a row. But like, it's just it's nice. I don't know. Those legendary individuals are Joseph, Nintendo, Adam, Sakura Sky, Art, Jeremy, Cosmic Link, Dante, Two, Tom, Andy, Stephanie, Billy, Connor, Rachel, Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout, Nine O Seven, Kelso, Chris, Tiffany, the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Dark Nuck, Il Maestro himself, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lennon, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Hyrule Interviews, aka Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals. And I would get launched into a separate canon than the one I got launched to the out desert. of earlier uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. to a completely separate place uh-huh. uh, into a sky city filled with uh, creepy nibble chickens. Yeah. Um, look, my, my fear of heights is really making me want to say no to all of that. But I'm so curious about the nipple chickens that I'm going to say yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, your fear of heights is already bringing you to a place where you would you would feel comfortable living in Skyloft just because you love it so much, regardless of how afraid you are of heights. That's so. true. As long as I never look over the edge, and I definitely wouldn't ride one of those giant birds. But. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Hell no. No, yeah. no way. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, also, birds are freaky. Yeah. Like just in general. Oh yeah. Like, birds are like, it's scary. a good thing. It's a good thing that most of the ones that are like living just around your house are kind of miniature. Yeah. Right? Like think about a bird that size. Like I would be terrified of that thing. Yeah, no birds way. Birds are terrifying looking creatures. Yeah. Uh, uh-uh. Just like Google penguin teeth when you have a spare moment. Oh, I've seen it. It's, it's horrifying. Swan teeth. Same thing. Yeah. It's, it's terrible nightmare fuel. Like oh my it's, gosh, it's, it's horrible. Uh, one or two things left to talk about before we get out of the housekeeping. One, one of the things we mentioned as a benefit of uh, being a patron of ours is that you do get to vote on what game we play next. And we're currently in that phase of life. We're coming toward the end of the game, which means it's time to figure out what we're playing next. Go vote on things. Yay. So the vote for the season 11 game is currently up in the Patreon. Um, I believe that I said it's going to close on November the 29th at 1159 p.m. That sounds right. I'll correct if it's wrong. Uh, regardless, we have a few different options to choose from, mostly top-down Zeldas, but we did throw a Zelda-like in there as well. Um, it is not currently it is not currently winning, but, uh, you know, we just figured instead of deciding, like, hey, we're going to do a Zelda-like now, uh, we would give our patrons the opportunity to vote on if that's something they wanted us to do at all. So. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's, it's a good poll. We've got Minish Cap. We've got an Oracle of Ages slash Seasons double feature, which would take up two seasons. That wouldn't just be one season. That would be a back-to-back uh, so that would be season 11 and 12. Yeah, and I think we're going to do back-to-back top-downs now anyway. anyway yeah. Like, so so yeah. We're, we're just giving it up that you will do both of them or uh, we'll do Minish Cap and then, you know, or whatever wins, yeah, and right? And of course, so, bum, 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 Spirit Tracks. Oh, <laughs> God. Please don't vote for that. Just uh, Some people are... <laughs> For multiple reasons, some people just gotta uh, rip the bandaid off. See, that's what some people have said. That's, Other people have said they just want to listen to us suffer. Which that is, that is the argument. Yeah, fair, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. So look, lots of things to say there. Um, 
Also, if you are a patron, specifically a big Goron Sword patron, please check your Patreon inbox. Um, we've gotten some new ones since our last round of cards went out. Uh, we're working on the next round of cards, and we need a good mailing address for you. So uh, we have sent DMs to all of our big Goron Sword patrons who we do not have mailing addresses for. Uh, so please, if you are a big Goron Sword patron, go check your Patreon DM. And if you have one from us, please respond and let us know where we can send those cards because you pay for them and we want to get them to you absolutely one last order of business you know what that order of business is matt whiskey bit whiskey bit all right cool so the whiskey that we are partaking in tonight is actually a very special little concoction um not available anywhere not available anywhere except right here uh this would of course be the whiskey trek wedding blend which is a uh, a blend of select whiskeys that jackson put together um to give out to people during his wedding reception this which past was really fun and it's delicious so a lot of you may not know this but Jackson actually has his own little channel. It's called Whiskey Trek, where he and his now wife uh, sample different whiskeys and give reviews and all kinds of content. Um, and they're working on building that channel out. Matt, what is the social handle for Whiskey Trek? It is at whiskey underscore Trek, and that is W H I S K E Y underscore T R E K. Yeah. Whiskey and Trek, as in a Trek amongst the stars. Indeed. The logo may look uh, familiar to people who are fans of that genre. So, <laughs> anywho, uh, Jackson was kind enough to provide us with a sample of the wedding blend to try tonight, uh, and we told him that we would uh, let all of our listeners uh, know where to check out his content in exchange for that generous gift. Uh, the wedding blend is a blend of Old Forester 1910, Old Forester 1920, Old Forester Rye, Jack Daniels Bonded Rye, and Larceny Barrel Proof. Jackson says basically what that makes this uh, in whiskey terms is a burr rye, which is a uh, basically half and half bourbon and rye mixture, which he's a great fan of, as am I. Yeah, as am I. All right, so, here's to here's to Whiskey Trek and, and uh, Jackson's Nuptials. And to Jackson's nuptials. Cheers. Cheers. Spectacular. Just as delicious as uh, when we first uncorked it at the reception. Yeah, and I'm stone cold sober right now. It's just as good this way as it was when I had it. <laughs> totally not wedding. stone cold so, sober. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's always a good sign. All right, y'all. Without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering Twilight Princess Chapter 9, Part 1 of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap this week read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. And it's actually read by me this time. As we land back in the ornate Temple of Time, we marvel once again at the grandeur of this place. We're surrounded by the colorful and ornate stained glass windows, but as we make to leave the temple, we decide to stop and use our new item, the Dominion Rod, on some nearby statues. Behind these owl-shaped statues, we find a Poe and a piece of heart, and we count ourselves lucky for these treasures before we head off back into our own time and our own Hyrule. Back in our own time in the ancient grove that we departed, we see our friend Uku once again. She seems to have made it out of the temple just fine, but she regretfully remarks that the Dominion Rod seems to have lost all of its power once we transitioned back into the present. She says that there is a spell which can reactivate the rod, but she seems to have forgotten what it is. With profound regret over having lost her ticket back home when it was literally in hand, she sets off again to look for another way. 
As she turns to leave the grove, she remarks that she's going to look for the statues that respond to the rod, which may give her a clue as to how to return to the sky. As she leaves, Midna uncharacteristically pops up from our shadow to holler after the strange fellow about what happened to our new item. But Uku is already gone, leaving us with the question about what she meant when she said her home was in the sky. This is the first real hint we have gotten about the possible location of the mirror shard that is in the heavens, and it just ran full tilt into the woods away from us. As we leave the ancient grove, we marvel once more at the glade where we were chosen by the Master Sword, and the toll that time has taken on this place that was once the height of grandeur in the kingdom. As we are lost in these thoughts, we remember the scholar of Telma's group, Shad, and his interest in an ancient group of sky people. So far, our group of warriors have been instrumental in helping us collect the mirror shards, so we hope that we can go four for four and warp back to Castletown to check in with the crew. As with the other three folks, Shad is already out in the wider world checking into some leads, and Telma tells us that he went to Kakariko Village to start his search there. Additionally, we receive a letter from Renato saying that he has an idea of how to restore Ilya's lost memories, so we make haste back to the mountainside village to see what we can do for our friend. We arrive to find one of the Goron elders, Darbus and Renato, all gathered around Ilya in the sanctuary. Renato's plan is to retrace Ilya's steps to hopefully find something that will trigger her memory. The key point is that Ilya has partially remembered something about the Rod of the Heavens, which piqued Shad's interest and now our own. Shad is down in the basement investigating an owl statue and some accompanying cave carvings, and it seems that helping Ilya will be the key to furthering our search for the mirror shard in the heavens, so we start the investigation back in Castletown, where we first found Ilya after her capture by the Boblins. Back in Telma's bar, we talk to Telma about anything that can help us retrace Ilya's steps prior to arriving here. The only person that Telma knows for a fact interacted with Ilya prior to her taking up residence in the bar is the curmudgeonly old doctor. She gives us some much-needed leverage for our conversation with the doctor by supplying us with his sky-high bar tab. So we make our way to the nearby medical office to strong-arm the doctor into giving us some information. Unfortunately, he doesn't have much for us to go on, saying that not only can he not repay Telma, but he also lost a valuable-looking wooden totem that he took from that girl as payment. Ignoring the brazen thievery of a helpless amnesiac young woman, we ask what happened to this totem, and he tells us that it was stolen off of his porch after he put it outside to dry when he spilled some foul-smelling medicine on it. Once he sulks away, we sneak into the next room and transform into a wolf so that we can follow the strong scent of the spilled concoction. We follow the scent through the streets of Hyrule, scaring its various, various citizens and ignoring the cowering guards right back to Telma's bar. We find the individual responsible for reclaiming the totem from the sticky-fingered doctor is Telma's cat, Luis. She tells us that she reclaimed the totem with the intention of returning it to Ilya, but it was, in turn, stolen from her by some skeletal wolfos that went marauding into town one night. The pack of fiends can be found outside the southern gate at night, so we trot out to the field to wait for the pack of wolfos and give them a thrashing. 
With the totem reclaimed, we warp back to Kakariko Village to showcase our find to the group. Once we return with the totem, it sparks a memory from Ilya about her time in captivity. Apparently, she was not alone wherever she was being held. She doesn't remember any specifics about the person or the place, but the revelation of being accompanied in captivity means that her companion is still in danger. Try as she might, Ilya is unable to recall any more specifics, but one of the Goron elders recognizes the statue and knows where to look. He talks about an old and abandoned village north of the Elden Bridge, which was blocked by a rock slide recently. The village was home to the tribe that protected the Hylian royal family long ago, and their architecture and symbolism heavily featured aesthetics like those visible on the wooden totem. He sends Darbus to the closed-off entrance, telling us that the rock slide will be no issue for a Goron of his might. He marks the place on our map, and we follow the immense Goron chieftain to the cliffside entrance at once. The road leading to the village is swarming with boblins, and Darbus warns us that the village beyond is similarly infested. But we enter the abandoned town to see a completely dilapidated set of buildings flanking a central street. And true to the Goron Patriarch's warning, a host of boblins ready to use us as a human quiver. We take stock of the surroundings and get to work with our trusty hero's bow and the master sword to clear out the town. We make fairly quick work of the 20 enemies, and when we slay the last creature, we see the door on the far side of the village slightly crack its door open. We walk over to the far end of town to see a wizened woman exit the small house to observe her monster-free town. The old woman introduces herself as Impaz, the last descendant of the people who once inhabited this entire town. She starts stumbling over her words in her excitement, and she seems to think we're some kind of savior, and not in the sense of having rescued her from some monsters. Once she seems to have regained some composure, she confirms the story of the village as told by the Goron elders. And once we confirm our name for her, she tells us about her time spent with Ilya. And that even when everything seemed darkest, Ilya never lost faith that we would come to their rescue. She tells us that she helped Ilya escape, but didn't do so herself because she must remain in the village no matter what, by royal order, until a certain person arrives and she can pass on vital information. Finally, Impaz asks us to return a charm to Ilya, one that she always kept close to her heart, but imparted to the old woman when she made her escape as a charm of safety. As silly as it sounds, Impaz truly believes that this handmade necklace kept her safe all this time from the monsters prowling the village. We take the necklace with thanks and leave the cliffside town, hoping that this will be the final piece of the puzzle to trigger Ilya's memory. We land back in Kakariko Village and immediately enter the sanctuary with the necklace. As we approach Ilya with trepidation over what will happen next, we hold out the necklace to her and explain to the group at large where and how we found it. As Ilya reaches for it and grasps it, we see the flash of recognition and can almost join her in the flood of memories that come rushing back. For the next few moments, our friend's face is transfixed on the charm that is shaped like the horse grass that we use to call Epona, and we can imagine all the memories that must be returning. One in particular, a simple time in the spring of Ordona, which is her and Epona and us, enjoying the cool water, the fresh air, and beautiful summer sun. All of a sudden, Ilya's eyes clear, and they meet ours, the recognition that is in them 
brings us the final breath of relief that we've had pent up since waking up in a twilight Hyrule castle so long ago. As a tear rolls down her fair cheek, she looks up at us and remembers that we have been together, friends always. As we stand by the fire in the Kakariko Sanctuary, we're totally unaware of Renato, the Goron Elder, Darbus, and the whole gaggle of Ordon Village children watching this reunion with tender looks of compassion. Eventually, the room clears and only Ilya remains with us. We embrace our dearest friend, relief continuing to flood our heart in waves. After a long while, we finally break the spell that this moment has cast and tell her that we must return to the task at hand. Before we leave, Ilya gives us the charm necklace that she made, which serves the purpose of being able to call Epona to us at any time. We put the charm around our neck and know that it will always hold a special place in our heart, far beyond its mere utility. As Renato re-enters the sanctuary, Ilya corrects something that she was talking about earlier regarding the Rod of Heavens. The thing she was trying to remember was that Impaz had told her that her people were guarding something for someone called the Messenger of the Heavens, but that she couldn't pass it on to that person until they arrived with the Rod of the Heavens. Since it's most likely that the Rod of the Heavens means the Dominion Rod, we decide to trek back to Impaz and introduce ourselves properly this time, and hopefully find something out that will help open the way to the Mirror Shard that is supposedly hidden in the sky somewhere. Sure enough, upon arriving and showing Impaz the Dominion Rod, she promptly hands over an ancient leather-bound book written in the language of the Sky People. Finally, with a concrete clue in hand, we warp back yet again to Kakariko Village to join Shad in his research and see if he can make anything of this ancient tome. Sure enough, as soon as Shad lays his eyes and hands on the book, he is utterly ecstatic. Luckily, his father taught him quite a bit of the ancient sky language, and he is able to read some of the passages. He holds up the book towards an owl statue in the cellar and recites what sounds like an incomplete incantation but nothing happens after he's finished. He looks long and hard at the book and comes to the conclusion that the spell is incomplete because one of the words is missing several characters. He theorizes that other statues, similar to this one, may contain the missing symbols. There are several scattered around Hyrule, so he marks them on our map and sets off on his own to check them out. Once he leaves the room, we hear a strange noise from our magical pack and pull out the Dominion Rod to see that his, it has regained its full power once again. Whatever spell Shad read out of the book seems to have revitalized the ancient rod, and we're sure that this will help us suss out what we need to reach the sky. We start our journey around Hyrule back in Faron Woods, where we use the Dominion Rod to move an owl statue tucked away near the Lantern Oil Shop. Under the base of the statue is a glowing symbol of the sky language, and it magically transfers itself into the ancient tome, placing itself right where it needs to be in the word that is incomplete. With our path clear, we head all over Hyrule and the distant desert to find the rest of the owl statues and the missing characters they protect. After activating the five remaining statues, we have completed the missing word in the book, so head back, yet again, to Kakariko Village to see if we can activate the final stone guardian. The completed word allows Shad to recite the full incantation, and the final owl statue moves aside. 
The stone avian was hiding a passage into an ancient cavern that is housing an enormous cannon of similar design to the amusement ride in Lake Hylia. The walls of the cave are adored with drawings and writings that must predate everything else in this little mountainside village. One of the drawings looks like our friend Uku, and which makes sense given what she said about her home being in the sky. The main issue is that the cannon is useless here since the cavern is enclosed and the machine is very obviously broken. Shad rushes into the chamber, exclaiming with wonder and amazement at the culmination of his life's work. He gazes around the cave and his fascination with the drawings and writings is just as strong as his reaction to the cannon. Midna has the idea to move the broken machinery using her teleportation magic, but we have to find a way to get rid of Shad temporarily so she can operate in secret. We calmly explain to the scholar that we need some space to work out how to proceed from here, and he gracefully takes his leave of the cave. As soon as the scholar is gone, we teleport the cannon and ourselves to Lake Hylia to see if we can enlist the help of Fire, the amusement ride owner. Since he's the only other person in all of Hyrule with a cannon, we hope he can make the repairs needed to get this ancient piece of machinery working. And for a hefty fee of 300 rupees, he says he can and gets to work. After, after several days of work, the cannon is operational, and Fire promises that it will definitely have one heck of a kick. The loading mechanism has a claw shot target, and we load up, hoping that everything works out for the best. As we get prepared to blast off into the great blue yonder, we see Uku and her son flying across the field towards us, and they both jump into the loading mechanism just in time for all three of us to be blasted into the sky together. The flight is surprisingly short, and before long we land in a deep pool of water in a floating city within the sky. The clouds are beneath us and all around, and the wind is gusting mightily in the rarefied air, but the city floats incongruously and majestically here above Hyrule. Uku lands in the water next to us, floating serenely on the water like a duck, and welcomes us to the city of the Uka. She somewhat begrudgingly offers to give us a tour, right before we are all shocked and terrified to see an enormous black-armored dragon swoop overhead towards the center of the city. The massive beast disappears behind the nearest building, and Uku makes a run for the shop that lies in the opposite direction to see if she can get a sense for what is going on in the city. We follow her there and make our acquaintance with a few more of the Uka that inhabit the city. We find that the city has been overrun by monsters, and given what we have seen, the mirror shard do in the other three places that doesn't overly surprise us. This little shop has some supplies we can stock up on, and then we set out with our feathered friend to start exploring the city to see what can be done about these intruders. The Sky City is an ancient conglomeration of structures, completely unlike anything we have seen in our travels in and around Hyrule. Knowing the rumors we have heard from Shad, the city predates anything in modern Hyrule by several centuries at least, and the magics and technology used in its construction and maintenance are more akin to the Temple of Time than any other place we have been so far. As we progress into the city, we see that time has taken its toll on this place. Many of the floor tiles are missing or loose, and the infestation of monsters has caused destruction to much of its infrastructure. 
Befitting a skyborn city, there are multitudes of fans and wind tunnels that appear to help keep the air moving in such a way as to keep the city afloat, and its inhabitants of Uka are scattered about the rooms. In the central chamber, we find some claw shot targets that help us to move around the wings of the city on either side, and we use our spinner to extend some bridges to allow for easier travel by foot. The skies around the city are filled with cargo rocks, which fall to our bow easily enough, but make traversal difficult. As we continue our exploration, we find that the city is heavily designed for those of an avian design, and traversal is extremely reliant on our handy claw shot. We can't progress too high in the city, as the pathways are not suited to our feet and our claw shot alone, so we search for a means of easier traversal. Some of the fans and other mechanisms of the city are activated or redirected by large chandeliers that we can pull by using our claw shot, body weight, and iron boots all together. As we continue to progress, we find multitudes of enemies like Helmosaurs, their larger cousins, armored Lizalfos, and even some Poes that menace us along the way. Eventually, we make our way to the bottom edge of the city in the sky and are confronted by a new type of Lizalfos that flies among the clouds on reptilian wings. This Aeroflos is a formidable opponent and uses the cunning of its earthbound cousins along with its airborne agility and sturdy shield to make the fight a spectacle of skill and agility combined. Once we finally fell the reptilian menace, we move into the next room and are rewarded with a secondary claw shot to make a pair of the useful tools. With our new addition to our arsenal, we begin the long climb back to the main floor of the city and beyond. Since the dragon has destroyed one of the main bridges of the area, we utilize the pair of claw shots to traverse a collection of floating pea hats to reach the upper floors of the city. We have to use these claw shots extremely heavily for the entirety of the rest of the city, and the traversal of the airy spaces is treacherous due to the dilapidated pillars, floors, and extremely high winds that buffet the area. We finally reach the top of the main section of the city and find the boss key guarded by two large helmosaurs. We also take the opportunity to deactivate a pesky fan that was blowing into the main chamber, and activate a large fan that opens up access to the far pillar of the city, where we can see the black dragon circling on the top of the far tower. We cross the open space between the main city and the far tower, using our claw shots on some slowly rotating fan blades and we enter the main floor of the tower to find two more flying aeroflows blocking our path. We vanquish the pair of foes and start the long and laborious climb to the top of the tower, where we can fight our main menace of the peaceful Uka. The top of the tower is a large open space with sparse grass and four large graded pillars reaching further into the sky. As we stand on this grassy knoll, with the sky all around us turning stormy and gray, the giant twilight dragon Argarok descends to rake the field with its talons and scream its challenge to the sky. The dragon is enormous, encased fully in black armor with a large mallet-like appendage on its tail, and its murderous rage is now fully focused on us. We quickly evade its opening swipe and start looking for an opportunity to do any kind of damage to our foe. The winds are too strong and the armor of the dragon too thick for our bow and arrows to do anything, but we think there may be something to the large claw-like appendage on the dragon's tail that we can take advantage of. 
The next time it comes around for a sweeping strike, we try to lock on with our claw shot, but the beast moves away too quickly for us to successfully lock on. Argarok eventually comes around to rake the field of the blast of fire, and while it hovers in the air, breathing in the air for the attack, we strike with the claw shot and bring the beast to the ground with the weight of our iron boots. This shatters some of its armor, but plenty remains to protect the dragon as it flies off once again. The next time it comes around to unleash its fire, it's too high off the ground for us to reach, so we use the four graded pillars to gain some altitude before successfully locking on once more and breaking more of the armor. The third time does the trick, and the dragon shakes off its broken armor, revealing an eyeless, worm-like head and a large jewel on its scaly back. As it roars in rage, the sky around us breaks out into torrential rain and lightning, and a flock of pea hats rise up from the newly wetted ground to float around the arena like a crown. Argarok begins flying around the arena with increased speed and altitude, so we start climbing the four pillars with our claw shots once again to get on its level. As we reach the top and hook to one of the pea hats, the dragon comes to level in the center of the ring and takes aim with its fiery breath. There is nothing on the dragon for us to hook onto, so we begin swinging around the encircled pea hats to avoid the flames as fast as possible. Eventually, we're able to get fully behind the monster, and the large jewel on its back is large enough to hook, so we latch onto the dragon and hack away at the jewel with the master sword. The beast shakes us off and takes off circling once more, but now we know what to do to bring the monster down. After two more attempts at barbecuing us without success, we land the killing blow on the beast's back, and it falls to the ground of the arena in its final agonized death throes. As it explodes in glorious fashion, the final mirror shard is revealed, and Midna takes it safely into her possession. We're grateful to have this arduous fight behind us, and we look forward with longing to putting our feet back on solid ground where they belong. The city of the Uka is safe, and with the dragon and the mirror shard gone, we're confident that the infestation of monsters will soon follow suit. All that's left before us is to reassemble the mirror, challenge Zant to save the Twily people, and use him to track down Ganondorf so that we can safeguard Hyrule from further menace. It seems like we're near the end of our journey, assuming we can win out against these powerful foes, but we know that the danger is far from over, and more likely than not, far greater now than ever before. Well done, as always, Matt. That brings us to Gatsby. Must you? He says, I'm feeling rambunctious. You are a spirited boy, and we love you, but you're a lot right now. Down. Down. Huh. This brings us to part two of the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. Alrighty, Matt, you've already teased a little bit about some certain specific ways that this chunk of the game is different than the... Uh, past few weeks, especially in terms of the activities that we have to get up to between dungeons. Um, so I think that's going to be the main topic of conversation in this little area right here. Yes. Max, I'm going to throw it over to you first. How are you feeling about um, the the activities we get up to between Temple of Time and the City in the Sky? Hmm. Um, it was 
kind of a pleasant surprise to have more stuff to do again. Uh, but it's, it doesn't feel like a throwback to the beginning of the game because this, the nature of what you're doing between these dungeons is very different from the like plot, the linear plot set pieces from the first half of the game. Right? It's a lot of like, go find these eight, eight things that are spread around and they're marked on your map. You can do them in any order and there's, there's no dialogue. Or there's, go find this place. Here's a few words of clues about where it is. Um, and then you get there and there's some fun gameplay. Um, so it's like a very, it's, it's kind of unique in the stretch of this game. This little time between these two dungeons feels pretty unique. Yeah, um, it, it, it's definitely interesting because even though everything that we do here does take you kind of all around the map for the most part, I, we don't get back to Snow Peak. Um, but, I, you know, we we do revisit most corners of the map that we've uh, that we've come to so far. Uh, and you could say that that is a good thing in and of itself just because you're traveling around, um, you know, and it, it's, it's taking up time, like you're getting more use out of these spaces. Uh, but I, I do think that there is a shallowness to these events that kind of doesn't yes. allow them to pop in the same way as some of that early game stuff. And on top of that is the fact that in the early game, we were discovering new places. Yeah. Right? And that always helps. Yeah. I, I think my, my blush thoughts is uh, I, I like the idea of, of what was done. Right. And I think that there are parts of this that are really good. I think the quest to recover Ilya's memory, like tying up that loose thread and they definitely left this open-ended for this purpose, right? So that they would have that they would have this to to kind of close off the main part of the game with, right? And um, as we're moving into the finale now, like they wanted to tie up one last big character moment, and it's arguably like the big character moment for our non uh, A and B character, meaning Link and Midna, and so Ilya being the kind of romance or uh, you know the best friend if you don't want to take it to a romantic place, but I think undoubtedly it is romantic. So uh, they left this here intentionally. Right. And I actually think the recovering Ilya's memory quest is, is good. Um, it was when we started like trying to get the, um, characters for the, the skybook was tedious and shallow. Yeah. And didn't love it. So, so let's split those things real quick and yes. talk about them one at a time. Let's let's talk about Ilya first and yeah. the the plot ramifications and the the tying up of the Ordon village story. R- real quick before we do, um overall uh oh, some of the stuff that happens in this section feels like filler, but I don't think it is. I think the dev team was purposefully trying to force us to travel around the world to expose us to opportunities to explore and find stuff. Right. They basically are like, okay, there's a bunch of heart pieces. The players are only now really able to explore everywhere. Let's get them out into that world that we made so they'll actually explore it. Hmm. I think that was their goal. Well, I think they were they were successful in that goal because I can just say anecdotally from my end of things, uh, there was quite a lot of me peeling off because like peeling off of the main track I was on because I noticed like here's some hookshot targets. uh, Here's a spinner rail. Stuff like that. Yeah. It's funny. I actually didn't do that because I knew our dungeon item this week was the double claw shot. And so I was like, after I get the double claw shot, I'll go back and finish these things. And so, you know, for me, it wasn't successful, but 
like have you having said that, Max, I kind of wish that it had been for me because that would have been a good opportunity to at least wrap up some stuff that I didn't do. And I probably should have. So, yeah, yeah maybe I'm just dumb. That, uh, no, I mean, it's it it's tough because I think at this point in the game, Matt, you and I are usually making a beeline towards dungeons but, and leaving ourselves room in like the final episode or two to go clean up some of this stuff. Right. So um, I can totally see where you would have wanted to put some of this off until next week or or maybe the week after. But uh, yeah, I, I think they were pretty successful in what you're talking about, Max. And I, I do... I do admire that as a decision. Like if you're if you're going to try and find a somewhat organic way to funnel people into discovering those things, especially in a world like Twilight Princess, where, you know, in a top down Zelda, you don't really have this issue as much. Right. Because the world you're looking at is so condensed on the screen. And so the little hints and stuff um, in terms of like, oh, I couldn't get up here before, but I need to come back later with a specific item or whatnot. Um you tend to see those more and more like on a recurring basis throughout the entire time you're playing the game. Um, But in the 3d games, especially this one where let's be honest, none of us are spending any more time just wandering around Hyrule field than we absolutely need to. Um, And so you, you can miss a lot of those things. So um, yeah, if that was the intention then I do, I respect it as, as a goal. Uh, we don't need to dig back into all the world design stuff again we talked about last time. But real quick, after playing this game, uh, it makes it much easier to understand why in Skyward Sword, the next game after this, they decided to not have an overworld. Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't successful here. They tried to do it and they had a lot of trouble with it. And they were just like, maybe we just don't need it. In the next one, they got a little bit there already with the like cannons sending you to new areas in this one. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's honestly one of the things that I think about a lot when I when I see people online who are making the argument that the Breath of the Wild convention of Zelda games isn't really their flavor. You know, they'll say, like, it's an objectively great game, not my flavor of Zelda game. I want bigger and more complex experiences in the Ocarina, Wind Waker, Twilight Princess, Skyward Sword convention of Zelda. Um, One of the things that I think about a lot when I see that is this exact issue, which is that if you were going to continue doing that ad infinitum, uh, then there would be pressure to just continue doing what Twilight Princess did over Ocarina of Time, right? Which is make your world space larger and more intricate. Um, And the trouble that comes baked in with that is that I it's tough to think of ways to make a high rule field sort of situation work and be interesting if all it's doing is being bigger and prettier if you don't have the breath of the wild sort of sandbox trappings of it it's definitely a hard problem to solve and they try to solve it again every time (laughs) yeah that's that's for sure um, we're going to have to wait a very long time to see whether or not Nintendo tries taking another crack at this in a, in oh a 3D God. game. Can you imagine another seven-year gap between Zelda games? I don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine that they'll go back to this kind of thing after Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom having been so successful, but who knows? We'll see. Mm. Um, okay, so let's talk about the resolution of the Ilya quest and basically the end of the story that began in Ordon Village at the beginning of the game. Um I just want to say that for me, I found this from a story standpoint to be fulfilling and to be 
actually fairly emotionally meaningful. Um, I was definitely catching a lot of the same vibes and feelings that made some of the early game rescue stuff feel uh, successful, right? Mm. Moments where you're rescuing Colin or Beth and Mallow and Tallow, um, you know, set pieces where you're where you're directly involved in saving these characters that you've known since the beginning of the game. I think that those have all been good moments. And I think this is another good moment. Um, I was a little disappointed, uh, by the moment. I, I don't, I don't think I'm jumping ahead here, but by the moment when she actually regains her memory, like it was very subdued and very kind of, it, we, I've used this. We've used this word a lot this season, but it felt a little perfunctory to me compared to the care that was put into like character-based cutscenes earlier. I don't even know if there was a cutscene. I think it might have just been a text box. There was definitely a cutscene. There was. They there were was, back in the Ordon Spring, and it's a mostly flashback-based cutscene. So yeah. definitely not quite as in-depth as like you know when Colin has his big speech about what it means to actually be a hero. Yeah, you know, for right. instance. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's. Hmm. I definitely don't want to say it was the most effective of all of these moments. Um, but I did. I did feel a little something here. And yeah, I, I, I'm in the same vein as 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 you, Lyndon. I, I felt something here, but I also totally understand where Max is coming from. Where this has been a game that has been so big in character moments and has really set that bar super high, and. Um, it, 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 leaving this till the end of the main game prior to the finale makes sense in some ways, but it almost lessened the impact because we're now so far removed from it. And also like you do, you do a lot of questing around to find random objects that we've never seen before, like the wooden eye, the wooden statue and the Ilya's horse charm. And you go to a, a new village and meet a new person who's never even been referred to. So like they're introducing tons of new things that don't have any emotional hook to the main emotional through line of the game and then resolving it all with a flashback and just some simple dialogue of link. I remember everything instead of some, instead of actual dialogue about like Ilya talking about what link means to her or something like that. Cause Colin did that. Colin was like, I understand now because of you, what it means to be a hero and what it means to have courage. Like you just get, Link, I remember everything, and mm-hmm. like that's kind of it. But like, I, I, I kind of felt something, but also walked away from it with like, man, that really could have been more. There really could have been a lot more there, and there just kind of wasn't. I suppose one one element here is that, like, story wise, my take on Charlie Princess has always been that by the end of it, Link has grown beyond Ordon. Um, and there's a much stronger emotional connection, at least for me, towards Midna than there is towards Ilya. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and so my interpretation has always been that that's true for Link as well. And so it almost sort of fits that those thematic things that at this point you're you're helping a friend mm-hmm. rather than it being the primary motivation of your whole quest. 
Yeah, I, I think that this might have worked just a smidgen better if we had been checking in with Ilya as a character more often in the back half of the game. I know that she's been hanging around Kakariko Village and she's there for you to go talk to if you feel like you want to. But she always says the exact same right. thing. Yeah, she just exactly. says, I'm sorry, I can't remember anything. Yeah, she, uh, she says something at the beginning of this quest. She's like, I'm sorry, a total stranger like you has to like deal with this. And yeah. like, I feel like that was supposed to be kind of an emotional hammer blow. But when she said that, I was like, eh. It's kind of weird. Yeah, that's a weird choice. If we had had if we had had character moments, even small ones of like watching Ilya try to like grapple with having amnesia and not being able to remember anything more often throughout the back half of the game, then I think that this might have worked better. But as it stands, we haven't really interacted with her at all since we did the the cart rescue. Mm -hmm. earlier right and so i think that's that's an issue that goes to what you're talking about matt where this has felt kind of out of sight out of mind for a while and now it's just sort of like hey and let's let's get this let's tie this one up yeah um in terms of the ways and means of all the all the different you know items and experiences and whatnot that led to Ilya losing her memory and then regaining it. I did think that this was all like a very weird spaghetti of plot contrivances mm-hmm. that I was having a very difficult time following. <laughs> yeah, um, like yeah. You, they're they're copy and pasting the the need to get to the sky on top of Ilya's memory quest and somehow marrying those things together when it makes like like following this through line is so hard. So it, it, yeah, it was a weird. Uh, it feels like the miscellaneous chapter. Mm, yeah. Like all, all the dangling plot threads that don't have anywhere else to go. Let's put a mirror uh, to an extent. Yeah. 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 And it's so hard because the um, all the details around how Telma even found Ilya in the first place or what happened to Ilya to make her lose her memory. Like, did she get bonked on the head because she had her memory in the village with impasse she was talking about Link while she was there. So she yeah. had already been bonked on the head by King Bulbin. So it wasn't that that caused her to lose her memory. So how did she lose her memory? What happened? Yeah. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, it is It is very, very poorly explained. Uh, and I, I do think that that is really unfortunate. I don't necessarily need, like, a police procedural, like, A to B to C, you know, linear presentation of events here um but i was like at some point i was just kind of like drowning in an avalanche of text bubbles that were trying to explain how we'd gotten to this point and like very little of it was was sinking in for me past the the very basic bullet points which is do this thing to restore Ilya's memory and by doing this you will also gain access to the final dungeon um i i know that that's all that it really needs to do but i think that Zelda finds simpler and more effective ways to communicate these things in it, like throughout its history. And this just felt so convoluted. Um, and it just, it was, it was a lot to try and mentally keep track of, unfortunately. Um, I mean, it does. So putting aside the emotional impact or lack thereof of actually restoring Ilya's memory, the quest to do so brings us to one of what what I think is actually one of the more fun and cool set pieces in the entire game, uh, which is the shootout at the Hidden Village. And I want to talk about this for a second. And uh, Max, you, you seem fairly unenthused about most of the things that are happening this week prior to the dungeon but this is one of those areas that i think people generally talk about 
and say, you know, oh, yeah, that's like cool. That's one of the neater moments in Twilight Princess. Is that sort of where you're at with it or could you have done without this? No, I think it's good. Like it's kind of a weird it's a weird combination of like it's really fun. It's it sticks out kind of like a sore thumb where it doesn't feel like it belongs in the rest of this game. Yeah. Um, there's some like strangely disappointing things where you think you're going to get like kind of this cool, like lore story dump about like Kakariko village and Impa and like it's, it amounts to nothing. Um, so it's like a combination of both highs and lows that make it really memorable, which is why people talk about it a lot. Um, but I did, I did enjoy the actual gameplay of the shootout in the, in the desert village. Yeah. Or not desert, but wasteland, whatever it the, is. The 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 little canyon town, yeah. The uh, the Morricone Western Village, exactly right. Um, and I think it, it's so funny because earlier when we got to the Kakariko Village episode, the Goron Mines, we were talking about how fun it was that Zelda was trying to slip into this gear that it doesn't do a lot, which is do a western, right? Kakariko, <laughs> Kakariko Village was very much like this is. This is what happens when Zelda tries to to slip into some Western shoes, right? Put on a pair of boots. Um, and it felt effective for the tone of the location of Kakariko Village because it felt like it had one foot in the Zelda door and one foot in the Western door. Um, it was managing to be both things simultaneously. I will say the Hidden Village for me, as fun as it was – definitely felt like it took that other foot out of the Zelda door and was just like, all right, we're going to put both feet in the Western door and this is just going to be a Western. It almost, it almost felt like an environment and a setting from an entirely different series of games. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would be excited. Uh, This is a weird thing for me to admit, but I would actually be kind of excited if they were like, we're going to make a Zelda game and it's a Western. Like Link is a cowboy you have pistols like i'd be like oh this is an interesting direction for the series uh, doing j- just here is a little weird yeah no yeah, no for sure like it, it feels it feels like someone had a little passion project that was what if we tried to do this and it, this was like his elevator pitch and everyone was like you know no but cool thing let's put it in the game <laughs> hey man there is there's one other part of the game that was like this which was that one big open air room in the the mines, the Goron mines, where it was kind of like the same thing, where it was a, a shooting gallery with a bunch of yeah, the, all the bokoblins up high, and then you had the little rock. So actually, let me al- allow me to allow me to issue a correction here real quick because I was browsing the Zelda Universe YouTube comments the other day, and there's one guy in there, and we we don't typically go in and, and look at those really. We probably should more, but there's one guy in there who over the la- the course of our last three episodes has been with an increasing level of urgency trying to uh, correct us in the difference between Bulblins and Bokoblins in The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Oh, uh-oh. Uh, apparently we've been using them interchangeably, um, which I'm going to admit to because I had no awareness of these being two separate enemy types within yeah, this I had, game. I like, had no idea. To me, anything of like roughly Bokoblin Breath of the Wild size that's like shooting just bows and arrows and crap at me, like to me, that's kind of a Bokoblin now. So yes. thank you, Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom for that. Um, but these are all Bulblins, 
Matt. Oh. And all of the dudes who are on pigback who are shooting flaming arrows and stuff at us, like at the Bridge of Elden section and whatnot. Sure. They are all Bulblins as well, uh-huh. which is why their boss is called King, king Bulblin. Bulblin. He's uh. not, it's not his name. He's he's the king of he's the Bulblins. He's king of the Bulblins. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so uh, that's our bad. Um, <laughs> but what's the difference between a Bulblin and a Bokoblin? They are green instead of purple. And a little, a, it's like a goblin versus orc thing, right? Yeah. It's like, oh. eh, I mean, someone who's eh. really into the Silmarillion can maybe tell you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm fairly into the Silmarillion, and I still don't know that I could completely tell you the difference between those two things. But I like, mean, I could, but it's not important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it more or less comes down to the region that they are from, and like the mm. the lineage in which they trace back to. So, okay, like, gotcha. it's it's very minor. Oh, like orcs are from the Noldor and goblins are from. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. It, it's more like the orcs are the ones that are ha, have always been in Sauron or um, Morgoth's service yeah. and were bred for that purpose. Goblins are ones that like went and dug into the mountains and kind of went and did their own thing and then kind of almost like de-evolved, whereas orcs have been bred over generations to be like uh, combat. Bread for combat. Right. You you tried not to go down the tangent. I know, <laughs> but you guys pulled me there, okay? <laughs> what what is the difference between bookoblins and bulblins? Still we, don't know. We still don't know. No idea. Uh, but but anyway, these were all bulblins. There are bookoblins in this game. Um are they the purple ones? Yes, with the, the gray hair. Okay. Yes. Yes. Those are bookoblins. Okay, sure. So anyway, why not? There you go. Um but yeah, so there there was a very similar section to this early in the game. Uh, you're you're correct about that, Max. Um, so I have a question for you, Max. This hypothetical Legend of Zelda Western that you're talking about uh, would the title for that game be The Legend of Zelda Redead Redemption? <laughs> there you go. Badum ching. Yay. Yeah. I had to get that uh, one off the should off be the brain. ashamed of yourself. Yeah, it's right there. It's right there. Um, no. So, OK, um, I for my part, I think that shooting gallery is a fun thing to be doing in a Zelda game. Um, to me, the shooting mechanics in Twilight Princess are not quite slick and responsive enough to make this as fun as it could have been. One thing that's actually frustrated me a fair amount in this game is whenever you find yourself up against archer enemies. They seem to be able to shoot faster than it's possible for you to get out your bow and draw and shoot them, um, which is kind of an irritating experience, right? Especially if you're close enough for their arrows to actually hit you. Uh, it basically means that you're just you're, you're taking a few hits before you have a chance to really do anything about it if you're trying to um, take them down with a bow. Um that wasn't as much of an issue here because this area gives you a lot of like long sight lines to pick these dudes off. Um, it's it's not like it's really challenging or anything. I honestly wish that this got rejiggered to be a shooting gallery minigame after you'd already cleared this area. Yes. Like, this game, yeah. Why does this game uh, not have a shooting gallery minigame? That's so annoying. The bow feels really good to fire and I don't have enough opportunities to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree on that. Um, it, it, especially when you consider that Ocarina of Time Majora's Mask really kind of did that very well. Um, and I, I feel like there were mechanics in those shooting gallery minigames that you could have built on to make 
an even yet cooler shooting gallery mini game. Um, and this game didn't do it. But uh, anyway, for what this is, like a fun little set piece. I mean, we had a lot of set pieces early in the game, and it's been a while since we had one. And this is definitely falls into that camp. Um, and I would say that I enjoyed it you know, more than at least a few of those. Like this is, this is more fun to me than the joust on the bridge. Right. Oh, absolutely. Like the joust on the bridge is fun and cool, but it's also kind of mechanically, um, horrible because the opponent controls are mechanically horrible. Not great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was fine. I do think the lore of all of this is interesting. I know that it's, it's pretty well confirmed, uh, in internet spaces that this is old Kakariko village, uh, implied, I guess, to be the location from Ocarina of Time or supposed to be drawing a bit of a line there. Um, nobody out and out says that, but it's one of those things where if you go and like translate the sign hanging above the village entrance, then it says old Kakariko or something like that. Mm. So, yeah. And Im- Impa, sorry, Impaz. Impaz. <laughs> totally uh, not Impa. Says something about her family being tasked to guard this town forever or something like that yeah uh, uh just like oh that's not familiar impaz has a terrible job um yeah the, seriously the, the royal family really did her dirty like <laughs> i have a note here that's like does the royal family even know that impaz is here <laughs> <laughs> like there's no way that there's no way that they know that just like you know she's just been chilling in old kakariko yeah. for generations we we beat the game I and mean, impaz comes I, back to the castle and introduces herself and princess zelda's like yeah sorry we uh, yeah. forgot to, we forgot to pass that one down a, a couple I, generations ago our bad i think it's implied that the town was populated and they were all murdered right like yeah by the bold she's the sole survivor Ooh, yeah god that's ugh. that sucks just just had to keep that Which book basically what happened in, Kak- in the other kakariko village too where all that's left is Barnes and Renato and his daughter. Renato. <laughs> yeah, man, a lot of people getting murder killed. Yeah, rough times out there for Impaz, but uh, she did exactly what she needed to. She kept the super secret special book, and uh, and we now have the book. So um, let's go ahead and start talking about the actual getting to the temple uh, portion of you know this little this little quest um in which we meet up with shad the uh ginger nerd the the book smart dude from telma's bar mm-hmm. who's doing research on an owl statue underneath of renato's hut in kakariko village um and basically the substance of this quest is that you have to unlock a seal that's on this owl statue in order to get up to the temple uh in order to do this shad takes a look at the book that we rescued from uh impaz and says you know hey i think that this book might hold the key to an incantation which can dispel the seal on this owl statue but it's missing some letters um don't really know exactly where to find those but uh apropos of nothing specific uh there are several very similar owl statues scattered all around Hyrule and uh, I'm going to mark those on your map and I can't imagine what help they might be but you should go all around the world and look at them anyway (laughs) Um, so that leads us on the quest to uh, use the dominion rod on these owl statues um, to acquire runes that will allow us to unlock the one underneath the Kakariko village Um, there was an interesting thing going on here that we haven't really talked about yet which is the state of the dominion rod after it comes out of the temple of time Um, it has to kind of get juiced back up um, because uh, apparently what happened is that passing back through the time gate 
um, in the Temple of Time uh, accelerated the aging of the Dominion Rod to the point and, and where it's burned it out. Yeah, burned it out. It's rusty and it's kind of disused, um, which I thought was actually really interesting. Like, not, I mean, not in any major way, but just like the the time travel plot contrivance of like, oh, you brought this thing from the distant past. And when you brought it with you, it's like it had been laying there, you know, in ruins the entire time. Mm. Uh, that was kind of interesting. So I, I liked that, actually. I thought that was a clever bit of world building. I yeah. thought it was thought it was pretty good. Um, even if mostly all it's there to do is to like once again force you to go on this busy quest yeah. right exactly and to and to also uh, allow you to have another conversation with uku about you know how disappointed she is because basically the entire reason that she wanted in the <laughs> temple in the first place was to get this thing but now so it's that useless. she could go home yeah yeah so um anyway uh so does anyone have anything they want to say about the whole search for the owl statues and the runes and everything that's kind of wrapped up in that uh I was kind of sad that it was marked on the map. I mean, I, it wouldn't have been fun if they're like, you have to go find them and there's no clues. But like, I'd been kind of like excited about going back to these owl statues all throughout the game. And this kind of takes the wind out of my sails a little bit because it's not, it doesn't feel like I'm finding them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. This is another thing where the pin system for map marking is like one of the best modern things in in game design, in my opinion, where you can mark points of interest on your own map. I think that would have been, I, I don't know if that was a thing at this point in time, but it would have been, it would have made this a lot better to have someone early on in your quest, like even Uku, to say like, hey, if you see owl statues around, those are like leftovers from my people. Like you should check them out when you have the ability. So then you're like, as you're going through the rest of the game, you see an owl statue and you're like, oh, I should I should mark that for later. Because um, then that helps you feel like you're the one who's doing the exploring instead of someone just telling you where to go. So um, pin systems are, I think, are really fantastic for this kind of stuff. Um a pin system would have definitely alleviated this base issue because that was my first thought as well, Max. Um, as soon as I saw that they were all marked on my map, my brain immediately clicked into, okay, now we're in busy work mode. Yeah, we're just right? – ta- I'm task-oriented now. All right, yeah. oh, I got to go here, and I got to go here, and I got to go here. And yeah. then my next thought was yep. what would have made this more fun? It's like, well, if they hadn't been marked, I would have had to actually explore the world and find them for myself. And then my immediate next thought was, well, that wouldn't have been fun to do in this world. So that's <laughs> that's the base problem. Yep. Yeah. It's the, um, the conundrum. It is. It is. But again, uh, this is the second time I've said this this episode. I think that this is the kind of thing that 2D Zelda just does better. Like, um, if we're talking about a game of like the Link's Awakening, Link to the Past, A Link Between Worlds variety, where you have a much more um, condensed overworld, right? And you, and and it's much less of a big deal to be keeping mental note of where stuff like this is as you're going through the game, and much less of a hassle for you to get back to it once you get to a, a, a portion like this. Um, I just I think it's the kind of thing that just works better in that setting. Um, And so, you know, I guess an extension of that line of thinking is I appreciate Twilight Princess for trying a puzzle like that, that, you know, is something that I would expect to see in a top down Zelda game. But it's one of the things that I just don't think translates as well um, as other conventions of the series do. It's just my opinion. Um, 
Yeah, more or less agree. Uh, I have a note that Shad talks like Nigel Thornberry. <laughs> oh man, that is a what? deep cut callback to my childhood. Wow. Uh, oh man, Tim, Tim Curry, living legend. Uh, wow. <laughs> Wait, that's Tim awesome. Curry voiced Nigel Thornberry. I'm like, actually, I need to double check that. In, that sounds right. Head, now that you said it. Hold on. I mean, yeah. Now that I'm imagining the voice, it's Tim Curry's voice. So uh, yeah. I had no idea. I think it's Tim. Yep, Tim Curry. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you. I'm glad I didn't pull that completely out of my ass. <laughs> like, uh, and just, it ends just up not being true. 80% <laughs> out of your ass. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like that. It's like a caricature of like a British dude. Yeah. Like a yeah. upper class British dude where it's like. Who's just way too excited about it. A little everything. over the top. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny uh, because Shad's got red hair too. So really he's looking like Nigel Thornberry in his prime, which is hysterical to me. Um, he's just he's one khaki hat away from uh, from really doing That's the thing. Awesome. My favorite uh, character moment for Shad is when he's just like watching you inspect the cannon, and you have to go over to him and like, "Hey, um, I'm gonna do this thing that is your life's work. Can you get out of here?" And he's like, yeah. "Oh yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. You do you." And I'm like, "That doesn't make any sense, but okay." <laughs> I have a note that says poor Shad gets no resolution to his lifelong quests. <laughs> and then a few bullet points down. I have another one that says we do poor Shad so dirty. It's so terrible because he's so excited about it. And especially in terms of all the other members of the order of the white Hyrule Lotus. Right. He actually like, like gets to engage in his own quest thing. Yeah. Yes, he's actually like putting in work and effort. He's spent a lifetime studying all these things and it, and they actually took him to the correct solutions yeah. and locations right it, he like, didn't just give you a, a crayon drawing of, of a snowman with a red fish and then peace out <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he didn't he didn't summon a gold chicken no, and then he, say see you later he wanted to stick around to the bitter end of this quest <laughs> and he didn't even get to meet nipple chicken he uh, didn't he, he would have been he so should have been launched up with us and then just hung out in the shop oh dude he never would have left he would have been like i live here now thank you <laughs> adopt me uka <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like that would have been a better resolution for his character honestly but i did just think it was so funny where we get down to that giant cannon and link is basically just like hey hey uh i'm gonna need you to leave i i can't do it when you're watching like <laughs> i have i have performance anxiety yeah um <laughs> and midna's like i thought it was funny that midna was like do you think i creeped him out it's like wait can he see her did he like see her floating above that thing it's because like that's that would be new. That'd because, be a new one. Yeah, because my whole thing here is like I thought the reason we don't transform in front of people is because it we don't be, want to freak them out. It would be too much to explain the whole like shadow woman transforming me into an animal thing. But like if you could see Midna the whole time, then I really feel like Shad <laughs> should have been able to stay. <laughs> like what else? Like, like we we're, we he has seen the most bizarre thing. This would not be bizarre to him because he spent his life studying it. Maybe we should just let him help. I don't know. Maybe we don't have to pay fire 300 rupees to repair this thing. Maybe we just pay fire 150 rupees and Shad helps him do it in half the time. I don't know. At uh, at this point in the game, it does start to annoy me that like Link hasn't told his allies anything he knows. Like they don't know about Midna. They don't know about the Twily. They don't know about they don't know about any of it. I feel like um, any, there's no reason for it to be a secret. Yeah, no, he's playing feel, it real close to the vest for no reason. I feel like if any one of these people knew that link could transform into a wolf like if link just got the whole telma's bar crew out into hyrule field and was like hey y'all check this out and <laughs> yeah <laughs> and midna's just hanging out and like talk shop with them for a while i really feel like everyone would have been okay with that they um, would have all russell would have thought it was the coolest thing ever yeah um 
to it's like it's one of those things where it's goofy and funny and that's all it would be if there wasn't a like a rule of the game associated with yeah. it. like you not being able to transform in front of people is actually something that like hinders. is annoying. Yeah. yeah. It, like every time I warp to Kakariko village, I run into the village and get yelled at before I remember to turn back into a human. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, um, I, did you guys run into this problem after you rescue impas, you go back for the seventh howling stone and no matter where you are in the village, yes, this happened. To it me. Ca- you cannot transform for yeah. for no reason, and that pissed me off so much. Just the like uh, the mo- the minor inconvenience of having to walk the 150 yards uh, out into another loading zone, transform into a wolf, and then back into the same loading zone. Like that just really irked me. And uh, so yeah. The same thing happened to me, and it's frustrating because it's an inconvenience for no reason, and it's not even consistent. Like, even if the rationale is that the character Impaz was still hanging out outside the house, um, and when you go into where the Howling Stone is, you're, there's no line of that's, sight. That's the thing, and like, it's so inconsistent because earlier in the whole quest, where you had to transform into a wolf inside of the medical building. And all you had to do was be on the other side of a curtain from the doctor. Like it, it worked fine there. So it's it's one of the reasons going back to the Snow Peak episode where it was so frustrating having to get the scent for the reek fish. Yeah. Right? The reason that took me so long is because this game seems to have very inconsistent rules around how close and how far you can be from an NPC while transforming into Wolf Link. And yeah. it's just kind of inherently frustrating. But yes, that, that happened. You know what else is very inconsistent in this game, Lyndon? What? The length of your claw shot. Oh, yeah. I have no freaking clue. <laughs> no idea. Uh, okay, I, I have variable. two more notes about this section. Yes. One was the most hilarious contrived stretch of this whole set of like objectives is when they have this side point where like, skeletal wolves came into Castletown and stole the wooden thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, sure. <laughs> another another point in the ineptitude of the Hyrule Royal Guard. Oh. Right. <laughs> it's uh, like, okay, I guess I guess now we know the, the skeletal wolfos are intelligent, and also they care about this particular talisman, and they came into the town. Uh, it's, just, it's a whole domino pile of... <laughs> <laughs> the skeleton wolf brings the wooden totem back to its like back to its mate and is like, "Hey, babe, I thought this might look nice in the den. Uh, <laughs> den because they're wolves. Yes, wolf exactly. den. Yeah, yeah, okay, gotcha, exactly. gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Uh, uh, I see what you did there. Yeah. And it's so goofy because you 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 know you kill all of them and then the the totem just like pops out of somewhere. It just like out of the ground. Just it just boop. bounces out of the ground out right of their den. Of um yeah it's, uh, <laughs> I, like i like goofy and zelda games but i like it when it's in like because it's intentionally being quirky the best part of that was the fact that uh luis is that her name the cat yeah luis stole the totem back to spite the doctor she was like yeah i didn't like that he took that from her so i just went and took it myself <laughs> like yeah you go luis <laughs> yeah uh, the Doctor is a creepy character. I hate the Doctor. He yeah. is a weirdo. Um, I actually didn't. There was a. He was almost my Z targeting for like creepy reasons earlier on in the season, and I chose not to go there with it because I thought about it for a second, and I was like, "Oh, this is actually kind of skeevy." And we I'll, don't reward skeevy people. No, no, not about it. Um, yeah, the Doctor sucks. But uh, anyway, so go Louise. But 
Louise is an honorary member of the Order of the Hyrule White Lotus, I like to believe. <laughs> and uh, somebody with that pedigree should not be allowing wooden totems like this to get stolen by skeleton wolf monsters in the middle of town. That's just how I feel about it. Yeah, Louise is a badass for sure. Yeah. She wouldn't allow that to happen. No. Uh, what's your second note, Max? Uh, the other one was I finally, for the first time, realized I could I could flip and talk to Epona in wolf form. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to talk to Epona. And it was really boring dialogue. And I, it made me realize I'm sad that they didn't make Epona a character in this game. That was important. I, I mentioned that to Mike and Lyndon last week. And I had forgotten exactly what she says, but you're totally right. Like, it's just two lines of just because you change form doesn't mean I can't understand you. Hurry up and change back to your true self. And she like nays at you. And I'm like, oh, man, it is. It is really weird, Max, because you can tell that there was actually a little bit of thought and effort put into the personalities of the animals that you can talk to when you're in wolf link form um, Uh to the point where it's actually kind of like a little pleasant surprise sometimes if you take the effort to do it. Um, and Epona being such like a, a staple of the series at this point, you know, I, I do think that that opportunity was there and it would have been pretty cool if that had been capitalized on. Yes, for yep. sure. Just a missed opportunity. Not, not a terrible thing, I guess. Yeah, um, I guess. I guess at this point, I'm not exactly begging for more things to get put in this game, but like that's fair. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Did both and- of you. Oh, sorry, Max, finish. Oh, guys, I'll have to change subjects so you can go ahead. Oh, so did both of you do the seventh Howling Stone and do the training associated with it? I did. I have all seven Howling Stones, but I am two training sessions behind. Okay. I need to go actually, I need to go find the Golden Wolf in the graveyard and the one in front of Hyrule Castle. So uh, I'm going to do that probably first thing next week. I'm not sure how many I've got. Okay. Well, Six or seven. I was just going to mention the final dialogue because it was actually a little bit different than I remember it being, but we'll, we'll save it till you've done it. Yeah. Let's then. talk about that. I have next not week. done the final. Okay. Yeah. Talk about that next week. So sure. Yeah. I'm at six. Feel free to change the subject, Max. Uh, okay. So I was going to say, uh, I have, I kind of want to talk at some point in this episode about the development history of this game. Well, now's and a good time really to do it. It doesn't really fit into anything, but it's now a good time. Now's okay, a good time awesome. to do it. <laughs> so I have a bunch of anecdotes, some quotes I'm going to read, but like at a very high level, um, something that's interesting about how this game came about uh, is, well, actually backing up even further. This is the last Zelda game that was directed by Eiji Aonuma uh, before he became producer for the whole series. And so the director is Eiji Aonuma. And after that, it's Miyamoto, right? No, Miyamoto's even further back. From oh, the sorry. Who, who's yeah, after, yeah, who took knows. over after Aonuma? Uh, Fujibayashi. Yes, that's right. Okay. Who I probably pronounced that wrong, but, um, yeah. So this was the last one that was produced by Miyamoto and the last one that was directed by Aonuma. So this is kind of like the old regime, right? Aonuma had directed the Wind Waker and Majora's Mask and was one of like five directors in Ocarina of Time. And of course, Miyamoto had been producer of every Zelda game up until this point. So this was his last one. Um, so that's just kind of historically interesting. Yeah, uh, Max, could you actually do us a favor real quick and kind of uh, explain for our listeners one more time the differences between these uh, various roles on the development team? Because I I know you've explained it on the podcast before, um, but even to this point, like I have kind of trouble keeping straight in my mind what the responsibilities are of like the game's director versus producer in the context of Zelda. Yeah, no, that's a 
Great question, and I totally should explain it. So uh, I'll start with producer. Producer is the is basically the highest role that is still dedicated to a specific game. Um, so every game has one producer, and the producer is one that is in charge of the project entirely, overall. Um, but that includes both development and also outward-facing responsibilities, stuff like um, schedules, budget, hiring, headcount, um, just uh, more kind of kind of more business side stuff gets involved at the level of producer. Um, and they are generally less hands-on. They're, they're, they're involved. They're probably watching the development and playing in like regularly at like milestones and stuff, but they aren't getting their hands dirty so much. Um, and that varies a little bit. Like Miyamoto was credited as producer in Zelda one and he got his hands real dirty in Zelda one. Uh, and you know, he was credited as producer in Ocarina of Time, but he was super involved there. But in the Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, he was producer and he was more like what I just described, where he was much broader. Um, and uh, in contrast, director is uh, is the one that's in charge purely of development. Like they're looking at they're looking inward on development. They're looking at creative decisions. Uh, we would probably call them the creative director in a Western game studio. Um. So they are not looking outwards as part of their job. They're only ever looking inwards and 100% of their attention is focused on the game that they're the director of, typically. Gotcha. Um, and they are, they are the ones that are functionally in charge day to day and probably even week to week. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the gist. Cool. All right. Thank you Let's for see. explaining again the director has more impact on the game than the producer in terms of what the game is. Okay. How it played. Okay, cool. Um, okay, cool. So feel free to continue on with your base point now that the, now that the context is in place. <laughs> so, uh, so one of the things that's interesting this time around is that it's one of the first, it is a Zelda game that had a big explosion in terms of other people coming into leadership roles. It had the biggest team um, of any Zelda game to date. And it, there's a lot of people who th- were in lead roles for the first time on this Zelda game, including uh, the first time, as far as I know, that a woman was a, in a leadership role on a Zelda game. I'm remembering one of their names. Well, I mean, one of them is Satomi Asakawa, who was in charge of the NPCs for the game. She was the lead NPC designer for Twilight Princess. And the other one is, man, I'm blanking on her name right now. Let me Google it. But the lead writer for Twilight Princess, uh, whose name I'll tell you momentarily, <laughs> Aya Kiyogoku. Um, this was the only Zelda game she worked on, but she came in, she was the lead writer, and then she went on to be the game director of a bunch of Animal Crossing games. Um, and she was also the first uh, woman to be a director at Nintendo. Um, so there's kind of, a, kind of a cool thing going on where there's a lot of new blood in the series for Twilight Princess. Uh... Okay, so there's there's that. Um, the genesis of the whole direction for this game was arguably a direct result of the poor reception that the Wind Waker had in the West. Uh, there's a bunch of quotes. Like, Zelda devs never really complain about, like, player sentiment or player reaction to this, their work. Like, they're generally, like, they never talk about negative stuff like that, except for the Wind Waker. 
Uh, and there are various quotes in, in various interviews where they, they basically like say that they're sad that people didn't really like the Wind Waker's art style. Um, which makes me sad to hear because Wind Waker had a great art style. Uh, but uh, here's probably the most interesting quote, which is from an interview that was conducted by Zelda Universe. Um, our, our friend Cody Davies was one of the interviewers for this interview. So he may have been the one who asked Onuma this question. Hey, we know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the question to Onuma that Zelda Universe asked was, what is the largest or most important change that you've made to the Zelda series because of feedback from fans? Uh, and Onuma says, I think the project that reflects a reaction to fan opinion is probably Twilight Princess. The incentive for us to create that different version of the Zelda universe was certainly a result of the Wind Waker criticism that we received. Fans were saying that it wasn't what they were looking for. It wasn't what they were hoping for. So that's why we went with this different graphic presentation. Um, so he says it straight out there. They made Twilight Princess this way to, to swing the pendulum in the other direction from the Wind Waker because of the criticism that they got. Gotcha. Uh, I didn't realize that it had ever been stated that explicitly. I, th I think to anybody paying attention, and obviously we've talked a lot about how, you know, it's – the writing's fairly on the wall there, um, but uh, it, it's nice to know that it was that it was confirmed by somebody on the development team um, as having been at least a factor. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely always the the feeling I got as well. Um, to to my eyes, like reading into it more, I always felt like the the Twilight Princess was a. Uh, kind of fear-based direction almost like they were taking shelter back in what they knew worked. Uh, I don't, I might be reading too much into that part, but if that's the case, do you think that this is one of the only examples in the development history of the Zelda series you can think of where I, I guess where that was the case and where decisions were not being made necessarily from the perspective of like, we have this bold new idea. Let's see how well we can capitalize on it. You know, I, I think so of mainline. Um, when I say of console Zeldas, I think that's probably true. Okay. Uh, I think all the other ones, you can kind of trace their, their origin to like some clear ideas and pillars that they had from the beginning that they were excited to pursue. Um, I don't want to say that nobody on the Twilight Princess team was excited about this because they certainly eventually became excited about what they were making. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah. Oh, and I guess one other factoid there is they were originally making something called the they called the Wind Waker Two. Like they were talking about the Wind Waker Two in interviews and stuff. Um, so at some point early in development, they decided to to switch. Man, I would. Um, I would kill for a Wind Waker too. Like a yeah. a console direct sequel to the Wind Waker sounds absolutely sublime to me. Like I'm not necessarily even saying that I wish we had gotten that instead of Twilight Princess. Um, being this far into the game now, I think that there's enough good here to where I think it does justify its own existence. I, I, like I'm not regretting that Twilight Princess <laughs> yeah. is a thing that we have. It's just uh, ah, what a world would that have been? Yeah, I would have. I would. I'm in the same boat. Just get two Zelda teams and have them make both at once. Uh, 
So, okay, the other thing that the other interesting angle to all this, that's kind of the high level stuff. The other interesting angle I want to talk about was some of the influences that developers have brought up for Twilight Princess. Because some of them are like surprising, but then you look at it and you're like, wow, that makes sense. So the first one I want to talk about is Satomi Asakawa, who was the lead NPC designer. She started on Zelda with Ocarina of Time. You might know her as the designer of Kipora Gebora. Okay. Uh, and then she did she did a bunch of characters in Majora's Mask and The Wind Waker as well. Um, but she has talked in interviews about how she got into um, 3D character work because she was inspired by uh, Alice in Wonderland, um, Nightmare Before Christmas, and Wallace and Gromit. And she wanted to make things like those that were like weird and had characters that were just bizarre but full of personality and she was the lead character designer for the twilight princess i think that with that context uh stated you can look at the characters in twilight princess and say yeah that feels pretty alice in wonderland night before nightmare before christmas and wallace and gromit like right (laughs) it's it's like all over this game I think I burst out laughing when I read that interview. I was like, wow, it all makes sense now. <laughs> all these characters look like they popped out of Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, edgy Renfair, I think, is one of the ways that we've <laughs> described this game, right? And uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's all right there. Like, And like Yido and Yida, they're from Alice in Wonderland. Yep. Uh, Barnes, he's a Wallace and Gromit character. Sure. Like, yeah, it's all there. Uh so I thought I always thought that was a cool anecdote. That is super she interesting. Kind of, it's like it, I mean, we've in good like good naturedly made fun of the character design of some of the characters in Twilight Princess, right? Just because of of this style. Um, but I do think it is it's admirable to have an inspiration like that and to execute on it within the within the context of this like massive triple a tentpole game you know um yeah like i i I do like it is somewhat impressive like if if that was the stated creative goal of this person then you know kudos to them they they did it they capitalized on it yeah they managed to do it in zelda of all things yeah yeah their personal creative goal uh she retired shortly after this um she worked on skyward sword and a few other games but then she retired in 2013 gotcha uh well, her to start uh, like a therapy business, I guess. Okay, okay, that's a, that's also a noble pursuit. Um, <laughs> not the noble pursuit beverage that can be acquired in uh, Gerudo Town in Breath of the Wild, but which an, I've always wanted to try. That I want a recipe, but an that. actual noble pursuit. Um, no, I uh, interesting uh, because I don't think that a lot of the character design in Skyward Sword actually falls under this same stylistic umbrella, which I'm right. sure she was not the lead in Skyward Sword like she was in this one. Okay, yeah. Well, and, and but, I don't think that it would have I don't think it would have meshed at all. Uh, yeah. With, I'm sure she partially went this direction because it worked in this case. Yeah. Um yeah, she was responsible for the creation of Batro in Skyward Sword and <laughs> no other character. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I'm just spitballing here, but uh yeah, I mean super super interesting. It's funny because I I feel like I don't have most people I don't think have a lot of awareness of like the individual creative talent who are making um, who are making some of the bread and butter decisions of the style of a game of a Zelda game in that way. Uh, so it's it's definitely interesting to like hear about inspirations and specific 
tastes and things that go into those sorts of decisions. I always, I'm always interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I love that stuff too. It's a major part of my mission for high roll interviews is to like highlight these important, but lesser known figures. Uh, the other person I want to talk about was, is Keisuke, Keisuke Nishimori, who was the lead player character um, artist and designer for the game, um, which means Link, Wolf Link, and Midna, and Epona. So he's also the one who made our Epona controls uh, his fault. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he also cited Nightmare Before Christmas as a personal inspiration in another interview. Huh. That's Interesting. Kind of odd. What year did the Nightmare Before Christmas come out? Uh, let's look. Nightmare Before Christmas was 1993. Wow. Wow. Okay. So okay. Not, not, not close. Yes. That's as old as I am, literally. Yes, but a staple at Hot Topics uh, worldwide long after that. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. The other thing that, that Nishimori mentioned, uh, at one point he talked about how he takes a lot of inspiration. This was a year before the game released. In an interview, he's like, I take a lot of inspiration from my personal interests. And in the interview, he lists a bunch of his personal interests. And the last one he mentions in that interview is that he loves snowboarding, but that he doesn't have a secret plan to have Link use some kind of snowboarding moves in the game. Hmm. <laughs> I have questions, uh, sir. He went on to be like the lead, like the art director of like Splatoon or something like that. Okay. All right. Interesting. He's a big deal now. If nothing else, it's cool to see so much talent early, like in an earlier um, phase of Nintendo as a company filtering throughout and like moving up and getting greater creative responsibility. Like the talent retention that Nintendo seems to have is impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Okay, and that that was most of what I had. Uh, got through my notes. Oh, actually, that's not true. There's one more thing. I forgot to find an actual quote for this, but somewhere in my database, there's a quote where they say that they were part of what they were inspired by when they were making Twilight Princess was a certain fantasy movie that was popular at the time, which I interpreted as Lord of the Rings. Ah, ah okay. I <laughs> The timing works out, so... Uh, there's some very Lord of the Ring-esque th- moments in this game, and especially in the first trailer for the game. Uh, so it's like, yep, Lord of the Rings, that was an inspiration here. Yeah, no doubt. It's actually so funny because I was just checking in on the conversation in the Discord, and uh, one of our Discord contributors, was this Luna, Matt, who posted this video? Wh- which video? The Shelob. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, Discord contributor, friend of the show, Luna, uh, was just posting a snippet of one of the early gameplay trailers for Twilight Princess um, as an extension of some thoughts we mentioned in last week's episode about uh, us feeling like the Armagoma fight was pretty underwhelming. Um, anyway, the snippet of trailer shows what is uh, what looks to be a much more terrifying um, and interesting boss fight where Armagoma is chasing link through like some shelob tunnels um and it looks straight out of the return of the king um so interesting to think what might have been there but definitely an example of what you're talking about max where like the early trailer content was very much like hey (laughs) as seen in lord of the rings um just really uh, really interesting and also that would have been a way cooler boss fight if it had happened that way yeah seriously yeah so the the pro i bet the reason they don't have the boss fight how it is in that little clip is because in the clip in order to see link 
in order to see the the spider, the camera has to be looking behind Link. Yeah. So the player can't see where they're running. And that just like that becomes a nightmare to design around. So that's why a chase sequence like that is often hard for them to pull off. Gotcha. Makes total sense. But uh, still, you know, hard to hard to wonder if if that could have been done in a successful way. But yeah, I totally get that the, that there are some issues that would be pretty difficult to overcome there. Um, I I want to talk real quick uh, before we get into the dungeon map, just about the fun little interlude, assuming that, assuming you don't have anything else, Max, did we, are you good? That is all I had. Okay, excellent. So I do want to mention real quick, the, the fun little montage, the building montage of fire, uh, <laughs> repairing the, the massive sky cannon. Um, I don't know. I just thought that this was like a fun, fun little moment. I want to know what Link was doing for three days while Fire was fixing this thing. Uh, it's a great. Maybe spending some time with Ilya now that her memory has been recovered. Okay, I'm sure that was it. I'm, I doubt it. But <laughs> I also like how this. Yeah, speaking of Wallace and Gromit moments, that little uh, montage. Oh, absolutely. Was. Yeah, 100%. I also love how this crazy cannon is apparently automated. Like, I can't tell by what means it is controlled, but it can walk around and move. It's like a, it's like an ATST. Um, <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, but anyway, we get launched out of the cannon into the sky, and that brings us to our dungeon for the week, which brings us to part three of the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is the dungeon map where we talk about this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. This week's dungeon is the city in the sky, not Skyloft. Totally different city in the totally sky. Totally not Skyloft. It's a, a couple thousand years <laughs> after. Legally distinct Skyloft. Um, okay, so we uh, we get up to the city in the sky. I'm going to do the rundown of the dungeon real quick before we get into a discussion about it. The arrangement of this temple um, is highly vertical. I mean, we were talking last week about how um, Temple of Time is a fairly vertically arranged dungeon. Um, and this dungeon is vertical in a completely different way. It's not vertical along one central area with multiple floors. It's just got a lot of verticality in the in the various wings that kind of spread off the middle area. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like within a given room. Yes. A, 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 there might be a big room that spans many floors. Yes. Um, to the point where when you look at the dungeon map, uh, it is overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's like goes from basement two to floor five or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's actually a very interesting dungeon because we land in an area that's technically outside of the dungeon proper. Um uh, which actually has access to a store, so you can stock up on potions and stuff before you go into the main. Which was awesome. Yeah, which was great. I do appreciate that uh, before you go into the main dungeon. Um, the dungeon itself has a central room uh, with north, west, and east branches coming off of it. Um the central room has got a uh, massive fan on the ceiling that is, uh, you know, you're not able to do anything with as soon as you get in there. Uh, basically, the entirety of the dungeon uh, for the front half revolves around using the Uku, the Uka. 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 Uku is the person. Uka is the race. Okay, cool. So there are Uka spread around this dungeon. In the, in the front half, basically what you're having to do is use them, much like Cuckoo's, um, to span gaps and then also using wind drafts um, in conjunction with flying the Uka to get to places you wouldn't normally be able to go. 
lot of play with the iron boots in this first section of the game. Um, you've got to equip them to avoid getting blown all over the place. Um, the second half of the dungeon traversal is uh, done mostly by means of the double claw shots, which are the main dungeon item that we have in here. Uh, once you get the second claw shot, you're able to claw up to a claw shot target and then use the second one to claw off to another one makes traversal way easier. Enemies that we find in this dungeon include um, a lot of Babas. Uh, we see Deku Babas. The, the, rav- the Ravager Babas, yeah, the red ones. Yeah. Uh, Big Baba, the pitcher plant. Uh, and then I didn't even realize this, Matt, but the um, the actual pitcher plant, like the the mouthy, the center mouth part, uh-huh. is a distinct enemy from the Big Baba. Oh, I thought it was the same thing. So the Big Baba comes out the middle of this thing. The center deal that you have to throw the bomb into, uh, its name is a Deku-like. So it's a like-like, but, oh, but a, a Deku-like. Deku-like. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So hmm. uh, Let's see. We have uh, Dinaflos, which actually, I was confused by this. I know in Majora's Mask, Lazalfos and Dinaflos are different enemies, and the Dinaflos breathe fire. Sure. Right? Sure, sure, sure. In Twilight Princess, apparently we have both Lazalfos and Dinaflos. Um, Dinaflos are the fully armored boys? Yes, they are. Got it. So uh, we have Helmosaurs. We have big Helmosaurs. We have Kargoroks. We have Keys. Uh, uh, we have P-Hats, uh, Walchulas and tile worms um the mini boss of this dungeon is an aeroflos am i saying that right i think so okay cool uh it is a lazalfos with wings yeah he's a flyy boy yes um and the boss of this dungeon is um uh, argarok the twilight dragon um the dungeon is is sprawling. I mean, all of these different main areas are pretty disconnected from one another uh, by two huge bridges that you have to span to get from the center to the outward sides. Um, the northern area of the dungeon is inaccessible until the very last portion when you're on your approach to fight the boss. So uh, with that summary out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about this dungeon and the adventures that we got up to in it. Matt, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, give us some overall thoughts feelings and impressions about the city in the sky yeah i aesthetically i really like this area i think it's really cool it feels unique it doesn't feel like any other area of twilight princess so far um it is it's a really cool place to be and i like uh kind of meandering around at the very beginning with uku and then meeting some other the uka uh just kind of seeing what their civilization looks like it's a good noise. Um, always drink responsibly, people. Um, and the, the the city itself is really cool. Um, the item and the double claw shot. I think this is the first time we ever get a double claw shot, and uh, it's 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 neat. I I think double claw shot traversal is really fun. Hey Matt, what's better than one hook shot? Two hook shots, obviously. There you go. Yeah. Um, two hook shots with uh, no defined length of how far they can go in a given time. So you really have no way of judging whether you can reach that next thing or not. <laughs> uh, it depends on how angry the hook shot is. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, Claw shot's like, you know what? I got a little more in me right now. <laughs> Let's go all the way out, all the way out. I think I can, I think I can hit that last rep. Come on, baby. Um, the 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 dungeon itself 
Um, it combines a lot of things like falling floors, uh, aerial traversal with the Uka, double claw shots, utilizing uh, lots of different weapons. You utilize a lot of the bow and arrow, you utilize the spinner, you utilize uh, the gale boomerang, uh, bombs, bomb arrows. Like you, you can use a lot of things. So it really is a item heavy dungeon, not just from the item you get, but from kind of most of the items that you've gotten along the way also um all in all i didn't really like this dungeon that much like i think this is probably my least favorite of all of the twilight princess dungeons we've played so far um it just didn't mesh with me it felt too long it felt too too reliant on the hookshot movement um which like I understand you want to utilize the dungeon item for the dungeon that you get. And we've we've often said that that's the best thing about getting a dungeon item. But there's a fine line between like utilizing the dungeon item and not being able to do a single thing in the dungeon without utilizing the dungeon item, which that felt like this, right? Um I also feel like the the wolf link utilization was very forced. Like the you can only traverse um, some tight ropes when you're in wolf link, which doesn't make any sense. A wolf would have a harder time on a tight rope than a, than a two legged individual. <laughs> like that, that logically makes absolutely no sense, but whatever. Um, like, yeah, I don't know. And you and I talked about this a little bit. Some of the stuff in here is really hard to find or like figure out what to do. Like it took me no lie, 20 minutes to find the first freaking key to, to like open the first door. And um, it's something I talked about in Arbiter's Grounds is hum- humans are generally two two dimensional creatures. We, we look on a very flat plane. We're not trained to look up and down a lot. This if you operate that way, this dungeon is your utter worst nightmare because there are so many like hidden hookshot things like behind nooks and crannies and you have to heavily utilize the entire vertical space yeah. to, to move around this dungeon. This was so. my biggest thing about this dungeon is that attention must be paid to every surface of a room that you happen to be in. And even then it's sometimes confusing, right? Especially before you get the double claw shots, because there were areas where I was kind of like in a room really having a tough time figuring out what I was supposed to do. And I was seeing hook shot targets, right? Um, And those were misleading at the time because especially before you get the double claw shots and kind of figure out the the use case for them and what you're supposed to be doing with them. Of course, like one of the first things you're going to try is hook shotting down to this target, right? Except once you get there, there's nowhere to go because you don't have the double claw shot. Um, And then, you know, there's also a lot of hook shot. Uh, there's a lot of hookshotable materials in this dungeon, which was a lot to get my head around in, in the first place. Like obviously the targets are something that we've kind of gotten very used to looking out for. Um, but we, you have like graded walls that you can hookshot onto. You've got the little uh, chandelier things that you have to hookshot onto. And then you, you like you weigh them down and they act as switches. Um, there's just like there are a lot of materials that are kind of that look different that are able to be interacted um, with with the claw shot, but you're not really trained to be watching out for those. And so there was a bit of a learning curve there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the main thing is you just have to be paying such close attention to what is going on in any of these rooms at any given time. Um, because if you don't, then you're going to get lost and confused and frustrated in here real quick. Like I know that I, I certainly was at a few points. Um, how about you, Max? How'd you feel about this dungeon? Oh yeah. I have a 
bunch of thoughts about this dungeon. Uh, I do like it overall. Um, not as much as I like Lake Bed or Snow Peak, but it might be. It's kind of fighting with uh, Arbiter's Ground is my third favorite dungeon. Um, you're totally right that it's it's a a dungeon that really needs you to be paying attention all the time. Um, there's a lot of subtle stuff that you need to, to notice. There's a lot of stuff that you need to notice that kind of blends with the environment. And there's a lot of stuff that is, you know, outside of your normal camera uh, view, unless you're panning up or looking at things from the right angle. I think it's the hardest dungeon in the game. Yes. And not always in the best ways. I think there's a few parts of it that are a little unfair or like improperly taught to the player before they expect you to do something. Uh, so I definitely think it has some flaws in that way. I remember being stuck on this dungeon a lot the first time I played this game and a little bit the second time I played this game. And even this time, my third playthrough, I it took me longer than any other dungeon has. Yeah. Uh, by quite a bit. I had zero recall of this dungeon at all. Didn't remember a single thing in it. So I would have to agree with that statement other than what the item was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But like and I I would say that I even had a a somewhat decent recollection of the boss. Aside from that, that's about it. Like I didn't remember a single room, a single puzzle, nothing. And so obviously that served to kind of like extend the challenge for me, which I don't necessarily have a problem with. Um, It's fun rediscovering a dungeon in a Zelda series for the first time especially because I do have so many of them committed to memory now like that. That can be a good thing. And I don't want to make it sound like I didn't enjoy this dungeon in a few ways because I did think it was enjoyable. I don't think in any way it ruins the the streak of good Twilight Princess dungeons. I think for me, this one's kind of competing with it's it's on like a Goron Mines um, Forest Temple level for me. Um, I would say it's probably a little bit better than those two just because it is doing riskier things and it is demanding more of the player. Like there's an inherent difficulty here. Some of which I think is fair that I am looking for a lot in Zelda games. And so I do appreciate it. I appreciate it popping up here. Um, But I think, I think what it really comes down to for me is one, I'm not a wild fan of this environment. Um, There's something about it that feels like it's, not really running within the overall aesthetic of the game. It, it kind of feels like it's coming from another another video game a little bit um, in terms of like the way the spaces are designed and the way that they look. Um, and I, I don't completely love it. Um, maybe it's just because I, I've played Skyward Sword a fair amount and we played it in the not too distant past. And so to me, it feels like we're getting a lot of overlap with Skyward Sword stuff here, but it's being done just a little less well, which isn't this game's fault necessarily. It predates Skyward Sword, but like I'm I'm bringing just a little bit of bias, you know, having you know having that experience. Um, so the, yeah, maybe there's something there, but I think the other issue is that when I hear the title "City in the Sky," I'm thinking that I'm in for a very like a, a very good example of that thing we say we love that dungeons do, which is like you're there and it feels like a used space. Um, 
it feels like it has a purpose and the dungeon design does a pretty good job at bearing out that purpose, whether it be the Goron mines, you know, or the prison and the Arbiter's grounds or the dilapidated mansion of Snowpeak. Um, and when I hear city in the sky, what I'm thinking I'm going to get into is an environment that is like, oh, yes, this is where the Uka live. This is like the seat of Uka society, right? Um, and what it really feels more like is, I don't know, like an industrial kind of like like more whimsical industrial, but like, I don't know, kind of like a electric wind facility. It's got, maybe? It's got like, like rivets on metal and stuff. Yeah. Like it's a. It's got like, I don't know, Castle in the Sky or uh, I don't know. I don't know what it's got. Uh, I'm trying to think. But, you know, almost steampunky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it definitely doesn't feel like it just it feels like a dungeon, right? With puzzle rooms. It doesn't feel like, oh, hey, there's Uka Town Hall and there's there's where they live and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so which is fine. It's not like those things are required to make a good dungeon. But we have been building up the Uka as like a an interesting civilization that I sort of wanted to know a little bit more about throughout the entirety of the game. And now that uh, now that Uku and um, and Bebe are safely back home, I guess I was just hoping that we would get some things filled in there, like like it would feel like the sky civilization a bit more than it really does. It seems very clear that the Uka are just they just moved they're just weird birds that moved in right yeah they didn't make place it wasn't made for them (laughs) uh they just took over the ruins just like yido and yida yeah they're squatters for sure which is kind of interesting because now we're back in head cannonsville but it's like if that is the case then cool you can just explain all of these structures as being like remnants of the you know of Skyloft or the Sky Civilization from Skyward Sword or whatever. And, and it would make sense if the Uka are actually the evolution of the um the Skybirds instead of the evolution of the Hylians. Because you would as- you would assume that the Hylians would have all moved to the surface at some point, but the Skyloft uh birds what were they called, Lyndon? Loftwings. Loft the Loftwings yeah. couldn't come down to the surface. So maybe they evolved over time into the Uka. Could be regardless. Um, I don't know. It's there was an extra layer of like world building here that I was hoping to get that I didn't necessarily get. Yeah. Thinking back to the first time I played this game, um, I was very intrigued by what this was going to be. Right. Because we had we had like Shad being like, this is where the Hylians came from. And I'm like, oh, holy shit, this is going to be a big deal. It's going to be really impressive and cool. And then the, the Uka being like, this is our home. And I'm like, ugh, gross. Um, <laughs> so I like, I had a mix of excitement and trepidation the first time I played this game. Um, and I, I didn't like playing it now. I can tell that they are intending this l- legend about how the Hylians came or descended from the Uku, Uka to be just that, like a legend, a myth, and probably not to be taken literally. Um, but when I played this the first time in 2006 and I was 18, I was like, they intended this to be the new canon, that these are what the ancestors were. And I was really, I was really mad about it. I hated it. That, that, that answer didn't satisfy you, huh, Max? Yeah. I was like, how dare they say that Link is de- descended from this? 
I tell you what, I hate the noise that these things make when you pick them up so much. It's just like it grated on uh, me yeah. to an incredible degree. Yeah, it's, it's super obnoxious. Uh, just did, did not <laughs> What did like you it. think of the, the cooing from the music, the dungeon music? It's, um, I didn't... I didn't hate it necessarily. It it was a little confusing right off the bat because for a second I was wondering if the music, like if the cooing was representative of an Uka or of an Uka being in the room that you're in and it being in there for puzzle solving purposes. Um, and it wasn't too long before I kind of figured out like, oh yeah, that, that noise is just happening all the time. It's not. It's, it's just the omnipresent Uka vibes. Yeah. Um, I didn't mind it so much. I don't, hate that noise i i don't know um i I guess i'm kind of neither here nor there on it It didn't bug me actively or anything yeah i mean me neither i just i i I pointed out because it's so weird yeah but not not necessarily bad well it's just it always sticks out to me when i play this game it's strange because it's like when you go to a goron area or a zora area or like all these other races and species like they've got motifs that they can lean on um, to kind of help world build when you're there right um, but for the uka all we've really got is the little tidbits of music that play whenever you whenever we've freed her from a pot in a dungeon right um, and so it's yeah I guess it's really all that they necessarily have to work with because there hasn't been really room to develop any of those motifs or um, like there's no uka theme necessarily like I know there's that one little repeating like burm 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 you know um, anyway <laughs> so uh, I, I, I it's kind of an unenviable challenge um, it is weird to me sometimes how the like the developers who make these games i want to know what the decision is between a race getting extended appearances in zelda games and then being just like one-off goofy things because like it could i mean so you've got the lingering ones right goron zora um now rito but i mean rito i think we're kind of a, a one-off thing for a long while mm-hmm. um you know and now we've got the uka who are very much just a complete one-off creation for Twilight Princess, and they never really appear again. And I'm just, just wondering, like, what 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 results <laughs> what results in a, a critter making the cut and coming back in a later game? I I think that's interesting. I also am curious what the game designer of Twilight Princess specifically. Um, this is probably the the most prevalent dungeon music theme that we've had all game. Um, as far as like what I noticed the most and was kind of the loudest in my opinion. Um, whereas we had really subdued tracks in uh, Arbiter's Grounds specifically and in some of the other dungeons. But like this one really stuck out to me and I'm wondering if it's just because it was so different and had the like the Uka cooing noises or if it was just like it was actually louder and like why that would be but i I don't know did you feel that way Lyndon or max that this was like the background music was overly loud comparatively max do you have any any feelings Uh, about this i i uh, i don't actually i feel like temple of time and snow peak both had louder foreground music than this one did uh my ears yes i think that that's true Temple of Time, uh, I think the music for that one is kind of sticking in my mind a little bit better than either Snow Peak or this one. I mean, I was playing this dungeon an hour and a half ago, and I don't think I could tell you what the what the music sounded like 
right now. Like I, all I can remember is the cooing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> when you close your eyes to go to sleep tonight, all you'll hear is the You're cooing. You'll be serenaded by the uka. <laughs> if I ever, Alfred Hitchcock, if, Shad's dream. Yeah, if I ever get into like film production and I'm making a horror movie, the first one's going to be called the cooing. Um, <laughs> um, no, I. I, I do agree that I think that the music is a bit more of like a present thing here than it has been in some other dungeons, especially like to your point, Arbiter's Grounds, you know, um, Goron Mines. Such stuff, a missed opportunity. Stuff like that. Dude, it really was. It really is. Like it, this is one of the things that is the most disappointing to me about modern Zelda is that the catchy dungeon theme has been largely kind of put on the back burner. It's not really no, a thing that really happens sad. very much anymore. Um and I, I really hate that, you know? Um, I think that there's so much good Zelda music that is being left on the table just by reverting to atmospheric themes for dungeons. Um, I really wish they would get back to doing it the other way. Um, I actually can't even remember what the last game that, what the last Zelda game was that I think really did this well. Uh, it's been a long time. Um, Majora's Mask. Yeah, I think that's 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 about as far back as I'm going. Um, yeah, I think that that's it, and that's really a shame. Anyway, um, yeah. So all that is to say, yes, I think that it is more of a present thing here, Matt. But I don't think that it's any better necessarily. Like it's it's not lingering. It wasn't catchy. Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't get the impression you were saying it was a good thing either. Matt. No, definitely not a good thing. No, no, no. Yes. No, not not good. Yeah. Um, oh, man. I had a great point that I was going to bring up. It's gone now. <laughs> Give me a second. Give me a second. It was good. It was so good. Uh, let me pull up my notes, too. I thought it was funny that when you first land in the water at the beginning, Uku is there and Uku swims like a duck. <laughs> and they made a whole they made a whole uh, swimming animation just for this one moment as far as I can tell <laughs> that's going the extra mile right there um, so one thing that I thought was I, I'm kind of trying to pin my criticisms of this dungeon on one or two specific things and I know I've already meant you know mentioned uh, one or two specific things I'm going to mention a third one. Oh yeah okay <laughs> yeah cool. here we go um one of the things that I think makes this dungeon feel even longer and slower than it would just by virtue of how large it is is the fact that so many of the things you have to do to progress through this dungeon rely on the slowing of the character Mm. right whether it be flying with an uku Mm -hmm. or flying with an uka right Mm -hmm. which is kind of a very slow meandering meandering steery thing that you have to do uh being in iron boots always a fun one right Mm. um Mm. the very methodical movement of claw shot target claw shot target claw shot target yeah um having to kind of carefully walk through an area that has high winds so you don't get blown off a bridge or whatever, right? Like limiting your movement based on that whole mechanic. Yep. Um, so I, I waiting for P hats. Yes. Waiting for P hats. Yeah. Oh dude, the waiting was, uh, it was excruciating. And then yeah. so, no, you're, you're hitting on, uh, a note I was actually going to bring up next as well, which is, um, just every single room in this dungeon has a lot of friction. Yes. Like getting from one door to the other, has a lot of stuff that will slow you down. Um, 
and it was exactly all the stuff you described. Yeah, it, uh, it, and it's painful. Like it makes this dungeon a drag. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't think that friction is a bad thing in a Zelda game or in in a dungeon experience yeah. necessarily. Like I think when it's utilized well, it can be very effective. But to Matt's point earlier, I think the entire dungeon revolves around certain specific mechanics that have friction built in. Yeah. And that can become a lot. Yeah, and and like the the biggest ones that were getting me was the the double claw shot on the moving uh walls that like rotate yeah like having t- like if you miss that you have to wait for a full rotation if you miss it again you have to wait for another full rotation like it's 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 just it's adding so much unnecessary time waiting for the p hats to come around when they're moving in their patterns like again just so unnecessary and um, like I don't need everything to be easy and I don't need the straightest path and fastest path to be available at all times. But like, it feels like this dungeon has more of this time gating and gatekeeping than any other dungeon that I can really think of. And it's, it's like, it was really yeah. frustrating and grating on me and an extra level on top of this. I mean, you mentioned the combat Matt earlier, um, and how this dungeon actually has kind of a fair amount of it. And I think, a lot of areas that have the highest enemy density are also ones where you're expected to balance that versus doing a thing. Yeah, moving right? around. Moving around. Like you're trying to move from P hat to P hat, but you've got like a flock of cargo rocks yeah. that are there. So it's like it's basically saying like that first time you get knocked off and out into the, you know, clear blue yonder and lose two hearts yes and lose two hearts by a cargo <laughs> rock um you know then you're sitting here thinking like okay i need to snipe these guys down before i go try to do this thing and it's a dang good thing i have 60 arrows because every other time i try to shoot one the wind picks up and knocks my arrow out of the sky right which is which i thought was very interesting definitely yeah. a, definitely a choice for that to be a mechanic like i think it's fun that the wind gusts can blow your arrows away just as an immersion thing sure you know but it really made it annoying <laughs> it, did, it did it did and it's it wasn't like there was necessarily any it wasn't like there were any puzzles in the dungeon that capitalized on that right right um like the claw shot can 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 completely circumvent that issue if you're trying to hit like a switch or something. And sure, you shoot an arrow, you know. Um, so cool, like a cool thing for them to have thought of, you know. Um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, but then there are certain areas like the the Deniflos that you're fighting right before you go to the boss room, right? Like you're trying to claw the air, shot the Aeroflos. No, the Deniflos. No, those so, are air, those no. Are, I'm talking about. I know what you're. Uh, oh, yeah, gotcha, no, gotcha. Okay. I'm talking about like so the section like you're. I'm trying to claw shot up to some vines to get into the room with the boss. Yeah, piece, but there's yeah, dinoflos yeah. that are down there. Okay, and then there are cargoroks that are around yes, the ring. And the, yeah. Everything is kind of swarming you. So there's there's basically mandatory enemy clearing <laughs> that needs to happen here, um, which I'm not complaining about. Like. I think that a lot of times dungeons have a difficult time balancing puzzle versus combat, right? Sure. A lot of a lot of dungeons, even some of the best ones, often end up choosing one or the other, you know? Um, and so I like it when they can be melded together a little bit. I like it when it's like, yes, there's a lot of combat, there are difficult enemies, and there's also a really good roster of puzzles, and a lot of times they're happening together in the same space. Um for a game series that is ostensibly about marrying those two things together at the same time, 
the Zelda games kind of have a difficult time doing it mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes. Well, you know, it's funny because you say that, but the biggest thing we said last week was that Temple of Time did it well. Was a combination of puzzles and combat. Yeah. And Temple of Time did it super well. And I don't think Temple in, or City in the Sky does it well. I think, I, I just don't. I disagree. I, I disagree. I, I don't think it does it as well, at least. Okay. No, I agree with that. I just, yeah, I, I think it's still, I, I think it's still successful. Like, just in, it, like in that one specific area of like, you know, how do you do both? Sure. I, th- I think it does both, and I, I think it is a success. Um, what do you think about this whole line of discussion, Max? I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, and especially just whether or not you think that I'm correct in my assertion that this is something that the Zelda series actually kind of has an issue balancing at times. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. It, essentially, they're generally designing combat and puzzle in separate vacuums from each other, at least until Breath of the Wild. Um, Specifically in 3D games, because 2D games didn't have this problem. Uh, So this is a problem with pre-Breath of the Wild 3D games. And, And I think part of it is just that it's, like, it's hard, like, players want to get from A to B. They want to go solve a puzzle. They want to go move through the room. Um, it's important to make them want to or need to engage with combat to proceed for combat to have any meaning, right? Otherwise, if you can just run past everything and they they just whiff as you run past, then it doesn't really matter, right? So you want the enemies you're in combat you're putting into the dungeon to matter. Um, and it's hard to uh, make that feel organic Right. A lot of times, like the, the age old thing is to lock the door until you kill all the enemies. Right there. Bam. Combat's important. Not very elegant. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but a, but what you're describing, some of what you described where they will interrupt your ability to traverse or to do puzzle mechanics if you don't take care of them is a more more elegant thing um, that I do think this dungeon does better on average than other Zelda dungeons. Gotcha. Um, okay. Typically, they're kind of just like they're in your way, or they will unlock a door if you kill them. So that you need to kill them is the way Zelda usually handles it historically. Yeah. Yep. Nope. That's fair. That's a is a good point. Um, and, oh, I, I guess one more thing on that is like, why is it good in two D games but not as good in three D games? It's because in two D games, there is no difference in your mode when you're in combat or out of combat, right? Like your camera is the same, your controls are the same. You're not really act working differently. Whereas in 3D Zelda games, when you're not in combat, you're, you're kind of running around freely, but when you are in combat, you're Z targeting and you aren't moving as freely. You're moving more slowly and deliberately. And like, it's a very distinct, distinctly different mode that you enter when you're in combat in 3D Zelda. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I think that that's a really good point. And um, I think that those are the sorts of distinctions that cause a lot of people to have strong feelings about like one form of Zelda versus the other, depending on what your tastes are. Um, I just think it's honestly, sometimes it impresses me that there are like, I don't know, similarities in feeling between the two styles of game at all. Like the fact that they can kind of feel uh, like a family of games at any point is, is sometimes very impressive to me. Um, 
but it is years ago. I got into an argument in the Zelda universe forums with someone who was adamant that the gameplay was identical between 2d and 3d Zeldas. <laughs> they could not be convinced. I spent like a week arguing this huh. person and I was just like enraged the whole time. <laughs> they wouldn't listen to me. Um, I don't engage with communities as much anymore. Uh, I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spock voice. That is wise. Uh, I I wish like hell that that exchange had been uh, saved for posterity because um, I would have enjoyed reading it and <laughs> like just pouring myself a glass of whiskey and reading that and having a chuckle. I think that would have been a lot of fun for me. Um, but uh, I don't think that person is correct. Um, I, you know, that's a bold hill to decide to die on is what I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so speaking of enemy combat, let's talk about the mini boss, the Aeroflos. Uh, I don't want to spend too long on these guys other than to say that one, I thought that all three of the ones you have to fight, especially the mano a mano one uh, that gets you the claw shots were fun fights. Um, and I do appreciate how in the back half, this game is starting to give us a lot of opportunities to fight one-on-one enemies who are sword wielding um and to get used to the cadence of that experience um and i'm not gonna say exactly why that is because i don't want to give too much away but Mm, yes but but i know that there's some player education happening right now um and i see it (laughs) and i appreciate it yeah i i i think this boss fight was a lot of fun i think it's interesting that they chose to reuse the mini boss later in the dungeon for a duo fight right before the boss fight i thought that was an interesting choice like not necessarily a bad one or a good one just like kind of odd it's really tough fighting two of them at the same time yeah it was definitely hard because you never know which one you're supposed to be focusing on um right which one is going to pop the shield up first you know and what i found to be the case is that while i'm like watching to try and figure it out one comes and swoops in from the side and that's how they get you a few hearts the bait and switch baby yep shake and bake they got me. <laughs> uh, I, I like the fights with the Aerofuls. Um You know, they keep you on your toes, and I enjoy the me- the mechanic of pulling them to you by grappling their shield. Um, but also how if you use it when they're on the ground, you'll get pulled to them. Unless you're using your iron you boots. Oh, I didn't think of that. Genius. Yeah. You know, that is one of the subtly cool mechanics that this dungeon does is like, obviously, yes, the iron boots help you not get blown away by by giant fans. Um, But the moment that I realized I had to equip them in order to drag one of those chandeliers down was actually kind of neat. Yeah, absolutely. Like the the combo of iron boot to claw shot is is cool. And I don't think really utilized anywhere else. And talking about player education, I mean, that comes back during the boss fight. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Remember the uh, that one wall in the Wind Waker Earth Temple where you had to pull with the iron boots, but it was like the one time in the whole game where it mattered. No, I <laughs> I don't honestly. I'm gonna level with you, buddy. I don't remember that. I believe you that it happened a little bit. I believe you that it happened. I just don't remember. I'm glad it. that they took that idea and applied it more liberally uh, and consistently in Twilight Princess. Yeah. and it's one of the reasons why I'm sad they don't have iron boots in Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. It is nice. Well, especially for games that are so physics based, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's funny because especially like in Ocarina of Time, iron boots are kind of a one trick pony, right? It's for sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Um, 
But uh, I do like how Twilight Princess has managed to actually get a fair amount of mileage out of them in a lot of different circumstances. Like, that's impressive, you know? Gotta gotta give credit where credit is due there. Um, do we have anything else we want to say about the dungeon before we move on to our discussion about the boss? Yes. I have just a couple of little notes. Uh, first of all, I think it's interesting that the the... Uh, the gear, whatever it's called, the Dominion Rod and the Claw Shots are all implied to be technology from the Sky Civilization. Um, at the time, like we didn't have an explanation for it, so it's kind of cool to see that they they ran with it years later in Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah. Um, well, and, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, actually, wait, expound on that point just a bit more. I'm missing the Tears of the Kingdom connection. Oh, ju- just that the Tears of the Kingdom had like expanded on this concept of there being a civilization in the sky with advanced gotcha okay so in in so in this case the uka are analogs to like the zonai basically well i i my head canon would be that the uka just are squatters on whatever the real <laughs> builder of all these things okay is. so the uka uh, the uka did not make the dominion rod <laughs> no <laughs> they, they don't even have hands <laughs> i mean you make a good point i'm imagining like i'm imagining 20 uka in a laboratory just staring at two claw shots and a dominion rod and being like well now what like (laughs) (laughs) like man we really didn't think this through no no opposable thumbs make some of the operation of those tools hard i would imagine That's amazing. Uh, and uh, then the other the other two notes I had were just little touches that I thought were were good polishy design that I noticed in this dungeon. Uh, the first one is you know how they have those chests in the water at the start. Yes, they have like ten rupees in each of them or something. Um, that's clever game design because it immediately tells players, oh, pull out your iron boots, put them on, go in here. And then they pull, they come out of the pool of water, and they the first time they run into that wind tunnel right afterwards, they will have the iron boots equipped already, uh, which primes them to solve the puzzle more easily. Um, I don't know if that was intentional, but I, I can't think of any other reason they put those damn treasure chests down there. Uh, so I, I was impressed by that. Um, and then similarly, I noticed that there were several places in this dungeon where they were using treasure chests or pose in at least one case to draw attention to importance to more important stuff right you see a treasure chest from the distance and you're like okay that's a goal i want to get there and it's on your map um and they do this in some of the past dungeons as well they that's one of the reasons these dungeons have so many of these worthless rupee treasure chests thrown around is because it's not about what's in the chest it's about getting the player to pay attention in that direction and go to where the chest is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as like a breadcrumbing method, basically. Well, I, I think that that's very necessary in a dungeon like this where um, spaces can be kind of disconnected from one another. Um, and the, the, the path from one area to another uh, is not as direct as just there's a door there, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's actually that's a fairly essential thing to do if you're going to lay your dungeon out like that. The one the one chest, or in this case, three or four chests that I could have done without is these damn stamps. 
<laughs> I want them to die. Yeah, the stamps continue their reign of terror. Yes. Oh, God, I hate them so much. <laughs> Why would they leave me alone? They're literally the worst. <laughs> they can't keep getting away with it. <laughs> but they do. Yeah. That's uh, really sad. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I just want to say. And with that, I have nothing else. Okay. okay. <laughs> I have one more very small point, which is that I love when Link is walking around with dual claw shots out. And you just look like some crazy lobster creature. <laughs> 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 like Dr. Zoidberg. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's great. Um, Have you seen that Daniel Radcliffe movie, Guns Akimbo? Where he's got the guns taped to yeah. his, uh, he's like his glue. He's in his yeah. bathrobe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it's just fair. Link with claw shots. Like, hey, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Um, how many times did you guys accidentally fall off because you tried so many? Because so you tried to jump somewhere and you missed. Innumerable. Or, uh, yeah, dude. It was yeah, so many times. I, I thought I, I shed one tear for you two being in hero mode with the double heart two, damage. Two game. hearts, Max. It two was, hearts every time. It was horrible. Yeah. I was so angry. <laughs> um, yeah. I look. The controls suck. It's, that that's what it, it is. is. It is suck. a lack of it is a lack of polish in the controls. Like yeah, I don't horrible. think there's I don't think there is any better showcase for the clunk that the controls have than a place where you are on a ledge in this game. Like it's so imprecise. I have, yeah, I just I'm flying off of stuff all yeah. the time, and I don't have that problem in other Zelda games. So nope. um, they yeah, it's a it's like a character scale thing. We've talked about that a little bit before, mm-hmm. but just like the size of your character and the speed at which you walk is poorly fit to the size of some of these ledges that they put you on. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right. Let's talk about Argorok. Argorok, Twilight Dragon. Really cool name. Very cool name. Actually, very cool boss fight. He looks cool. Like, I love him in his armor. The black dragon armor looks so cool. Yeah. You know, let's, let's act. It's really weird because to me, this actually creates an inverse situation with last week for me. Like, okay. Temple of Time freaking loved the dungeon, loved everything Boss about was it. Meh. Boss was just not there. Sure. Uh, this week, dungeon, you know, had some things going for it. Not my favorite. Boss was rad. Like, really enjoyed this boss fight. Um, I think one of the reasons I like Argorok so much is because to me, this feels like a a direct translation into 3D of a 2D Zelda boss fight. Um, oh yeah, maybe like, I, like the eagle from Eagles Rock. Yeah, maybe I'm just yeah. thinking of something like that here, you know. But uh, uh, but also uh, the whole thing where you have to like climb up the vines from a lower area to get up to the boss platform. Yeah, to me that feels very reminiscent of like you know Moldorm and stuff. Sure, sure. Um, where you kind of where you kind of come up to a platform from a lower area and you can like kind of move between them a little bit. Uh-huh. Not that you're trying to, but you could. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so I, I I think the space here is really cool. I'm not exactly sure why Argorok has hookshot great like poles scattered around this boss arena, <laughs> um, but they sure are handy. Yeah, I mean, they're really nice to have. 
I I think this boss is really cool. I think the whole set and the the uh, stage that you're on and and the way that it progresses is is awesome. I think this showcases the other thing that I hate about Twilight Princess controls, which is the Z targeting. Because if when you're Z targeting the P hats to move around, there were so many times where I accidentally Z targeted the one that I was going to, and then I was trying to get the next one in line, but it defaulted to the one I just came from. Yeah, and so I went backwards and got blasted by fire. Uh-huh. Like that happened so many times, and so. That was a big point of frustration in the fight, just, again, hitting on the mechanics of Twilight Princess. But um, outside of the Z-targeting woes, uh, I also I also enjoyed this fight. I thought it was really neat. Um, it's interesting to me that Argarok doesn't have any eyeballs. Uh, he has no eyes on his character, um, so he's a sightless... Uh, technically, he's a wyvern because he only has two legs and then his uh, his <laughs> hands are attached to his wings, so that hey, makes him know, a wyvern instead of a dragon. You know what he is, Matt? <laughs> I don't know. What is he? He's, he's Toph from the Ember Island players. He releases sound waves. <laughs> then he can see you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just got a pretty good look at you. Okay, yeah. fair enough. All right, all right. I'm living in an airbender place in my life Uh, right now. I hate you Um, sometimes. Um, But (laughs) uh, no, I I thought it was a good fight. I thought it was cinematically really great. And um, the, the, when you move into the second phase and it gets all stormy and uh, the lightning is all over the place. This is maybe one of the coolest cuts to second phase of boss fight. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I, I love any, anytime armor falling off, causes a phase change is a success yes like it's always the right choice for enemy designs <laughs> <laughs> always <laughs> 10 out of 10 yeah uh one of the reasons that the dark nut fight last week was a better fight than the actual boss fight yes yes yeah yes so uh max yeah. what do you think i love this boss i think it might be my favorite dungeon boss in this game uh not entirely sure but it's it's just such a fun spectacle. Um, like the boss has a cool design. The space has this great vibe to it. Like it's a it's a f- terrifying but cool atmosphere. Uh, like I am afraid of the fire that dragon is firing out when I'm uh, shooting from P hat to P hat. Like I'm like oh god oh god I need to go fast otherwise the fire is gonna get me yep. and. Even, the fire isn't even that dangerous to me when I'm in normal mode, but it does have a, a negative impact in that I have to reclimb the pillars. Yeah. Right. So it kind of has some tension there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess all those elements kind of come together for me. It's just an enjoyable, spectacular boss fight. Do you think there's anything to what I was saying earlier about how this feels a bit more like a 2D Zelda boss fight in some ways? Um, just in terms of like setting or like, like a a translation of a 2d Zelda boss fight, I should say. I don't entirely see it to be honest. Okay. Um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you're way too happy about that, Matt. Uh, Yeah. I mean, generally, yes. (laughs) It's, I mean, like, like, like the way 2d boss fights in Zelda usually go is that you have kind of the cadence of how you're using your weapon on them and how you're moving around is a lot more fluid. Like you're fluidly swapping between sword and movement and new item. And this is more like a 3d boss fight to my eyes where it's like, it's got very distinct like damage phases versus mechanic phases and stuff like that. Um, I would be curious to hear more if you think you could articulate it more. 
Not necessarily. I I think I don't know. Um, it really it, it it was something that clicked in my mind in the moment where I was climbing up into the arena from a lower area. Uh, I don't like I don't know what the association was there necessarily. Um, I definitely did get like Matt said, Eagles Tower vibes. Yeah, and, and, uh, evil eagle yeah, vibes. Right, and yeah, maybe maybe that is just all it is. That's a, it's weird to me that that would be what the association is stemming from, given that the Eagles Tower fight is a side-scrolling fight in its entirety. Um, so yeah, it's strange, but I don't know. I, uh, who knows? Um, might be nothing, but it, it it tickled something in the back of my mind, uh, but can't explain it super well right now. Um, but anyway, oh, overall, like I, I, I do think it is a very fun boss fight. The spectacle of it is really incredible. It's interesting when you talk about this being your favorite boss fight in the game, Max, because I think we've been talking so much about favorite dungeons. Like, what is the strongest dungeon in Twilight Princess? And I think when I think the conversation gets a lot less well defined when you start talking about boss fights, um, because I. Th- I would actually say that Twilight Princess to me has been a story of excellent dungeons and mediocre boss fights. I would agree with that for the most part. Yeah. For the, for the most part. Um, But, uh, and so talking about what ends up at the top of the pile becomes an interesting discussion. Um, (laughs) I I do think that this is certainly a competitor. Um, I think that this would be considered a good boss fight in any Zelda game that it appeared in. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. So but, uh, Twilight Princess saves all its boss fight bucks for later. the end. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. For something coming up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Well, I think that brings us out of the dungeon map. Let's go ahead and get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk mm-hmm. about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. Matt, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, well, uh, that's good because I, I don't really have anything. I didn't do a whole lot. I, I collected some heart pieces and some rupees while we were looking for owl statues. But uh-huh. uh, other than that, I, I really didn't do much. Other, uh, I said I did the seventh howling stone. Um, so I guess that counts, but we're, we'll talk about that next week after you get to do it. So, yeah, uh, similar, you know, I didn't do a ton. I branched off to find a few, uh, heart pieces and things. Um, there was, there was one that I did that I thought was actually pretty cool. Um, when I was going off to find the hidden village, I was going on the hint that, uh, um, that Renato gave us, which is that it's like, oh, it's, you know, it peels off of the path towards Lanayru around Elden Bridge. And, so I didn't know exactly where the entrance to this was. Uh, and so I started off kind of following a hookshot target um, that's kind of up on the ridge right past Elden Bridge. And it didn't lead to the Hidden Village. What it did lead to is a weird little mini dungeon, um, which has iron boot, magnetic puzzles, and oh. a few other things. Um, what did it net you? A heart piece. Nice. Yeah. That sounds fun. Maybe I'll go check that out. I, I remember that from previous playthroughs of this game. I haven't found it yet in this one. I do love that. Yeah, that little one. It was actually fairly substantial. Um, it was it was a really fun little way to spend like twenty minutes. Um, and so that was a that was a really pleasant bloopy trail. Honestly, what it was was a one off shrine in mm. in Twilight Princess. Mm. Uh, yeah. Nice. Um, and I enjoyed it so much that I was kind of thinking to myself like, all right, well, look if you know, if you're if your overworld is going to be this kind of empty and, and feel this way, if you want to add more 
impetus to explore within it, then mm-hmm. do more of this. Like, yeah, copy and paste this. Like, I don't know, fifteen times or whatever. And, yeah, seriously. And, then I'll, I'll I'll actually be invested yeah, in trying to find I'll, your nooks and crannies. I'll start looking around. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you want to do more of this, and and just make the make the reward known. Just heart piece at the end of every one. Whatever, that's yeah. fine. Good yeah. for me. Yep. So that was a good time, but that's about all I got up to. I did buy the magic armor, um, which, uh, you know, we've already talked about the process to get that. Um, I guess an extra bloopy trail on top of that is that I spent uh, two or three minutes kind of like dancing in my seat, listening to the Mallow Mart <laughs> Castletown music. <laughs> that was a fun side quest for me. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Bum, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, bum. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was good. Yeah, it was, it was good great. rendition. Thank you. Um, I love the little voices that are in there, like, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Something about being in that store just freaking cracks me up. It's hysterical. It's so funny. Um, anyway, that's all I did. Max, how about you? Uh, pop-up Malomart would be a good cosplay at a convention. Oh, my gosh. That would that be, would be a great cosplay. Excellent. <laughs> um, one interesting thought just from your story, Lyndon. Uh, there's kind of this truism in in game design, which, I mean, I don't, people don't talk about it this way. This is just me making something up. But there's this idea that if if you want players to feel like they're really discovering cool stuff, you have to make cool stuff that is missable. Right? Like if it's something that the game is going to show you where it is or guarantee that you see it, then you're not discovering it. Right. Uh, And like dark souls or Elden ring are kind of the, the canonical examples of this because they have enormous entire zones biomes and areas that you could be missing out if you just don't find them in the right secret spot. Um, and so your story just kind of made me think of that. Uh, well, I, I haven't played Dark Souls or Elden Ring, but no. I have played Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. And I do yeah, think so they, they do it too. Yeah, they, they do it as well, right? Like those are games that are by definition – there are things you absolutely need to do if your goal is to beat the story of the game. And then there's the other 85 percent, 90% of the game. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, I was like, I kept like the number kept going up in my mind as I thought about it. But yeah, like the other 90% of the game, which is completely optional um, and completely missable. And that's why it's so fun to do it. So, yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, my, What's what's this one called? Not sea targeting. Uh, Bluey trails. trails. Uh, I I found a bunch of heart pieces mostly while I was wandering around gathering owl statues. Um, I found a bunch of bugs in the same, and I found a bunch of pose. That <laughs> that was all cool. Um, cool. Yeah, I'm at a point in the game right now where if I find a heart piece, it makes me happy, but I'm not going out of my way to look for them. And w- as far as pose are concerned, I've already resigned myself to the fact that I am I'm not going for all 60 of them um like I'm, I'm not trying so they've kind of they have no allure for me anymore um yeah especially knowing the reward which is like yes infinite rupees are cool but that's a classic zelda <laughs> example of like i'm a i'm a wildly rich man five minutes away from beating this game yeah i guess yeah. if you combine it with the magic armor you're invincible, invincible. Right? yeah that's the for only the time it takes 
That's the to only run out allure and have to, run to back it. To him. And and it, <laughs> and the magic armor chews your rupees fast. It's like yeah, one it's every so second. It's it's insane. Oh, so it's not even just you only lose rupees on a hit. No, it loses when you when you use it. It they just drains oh, man, your rupees that. constantly. Well, then Tears of the Kingdoms equivalent to this is way better functionally. For sure, functionally, yes, agree completely. Because you only lose rupees when you when get, you get hit. hit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, speaking of Tears of the Kingdom's magic armor. Let's move on to Bloopy Trails. Oh, I was like, what does this have to do with it? Because it's a Bloopy. You're dressing uh, yeah, up, yeah, you're cosplaying yeah, as yeah, a Bloopy. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, Let's move on to Bloopy Trails, uh, where we talk about fascinating characters or enemies that diverted you, you totally butchered that. our attention this week. Look, um, we I would, just did Bloopy Trails. We're moving on from Bloopy Trails to Z-targeting. Oh, crap. Yeah, you totally butchered oh, that one. no. Oh, uh, no. You killed it in the service of the Segway. Uh, well, now I have to leave it in. Yeah, you I do. Mean. Well, Lyndon and Max, let's move on to Z-targeting. <laughs> Unlike what Lyndon said, we're moving on to Z-targeting, where we focus in on fascinating characters or enemies that we came across. Someone else go first. I have to sit in my shame <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> All right, Max, what, uh, what, uh, who's your Z-targeting this week? I'm going to pick Falby. Uh, not Falby, Fire. Fire. I was like, who's Falby? Okay, Fire. Falby. Yes. Falby is the chicken man. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Fire is the cannon man. Got it. Yeah. Not yeah. not uh, uh, not Gustavo <laughs> Fring from Breaking Bad. That's a completely different chicken man. <laughs> uh, anyways, Fire is kind of like the secret MVP of of helpful side characters in this game because he like gets you where you need to go multiple times. Without him, Hyrule would be destroyed. That's, 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 <laughs> that's accurate. That's He's not wrong. <laughs> we could never have gotten to the city in the sky without fire. Um, also, he's he's very interesting choice of dress. Um, not sure, not sure what his thinking there is, but uh, his character designer was inspired by certain things that caused him to be designed this way. I guess. Uh, I will say that had I the body type of fire, I don't know that crop top crop top would, would not be, be my go to choice. Yeah. Um, nope. <laughs> would not go for a crop top. No. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I kind of like his just personality, the way he talks, like he's kind of a swindler. I imagine him with a Boston accent. Um, and, uh, he, he kind of assumes link is the same. But also, he's very excited about cannons, and he assumes Link is the same. So, fun character. <laughs> he's like if you went into like a like a hobby store, and there's some guy in there shopping for model trains, and you you find yourself sucked into a conversation with this person about model trains, and you're just like, <laughs> yeah, I just don't exactly. know. I just don't know if I can hang in this conversation <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. All right, Lyndon. Have you sat in your shame long enough? I, I think I have, okay. yes. Um, my Z-targeting this week is going to be Impas. Uh, um, for not being Impa. Yeah. For <laughs> Notably. For, for, for being just a little different than Impa. <laughs> one letter different than Impa. Um, I think that Impas has has given so much for the kingdom of Hyrule. Seriously. Um, she's living in a cobwebby spiderweb house. 
um, with, uh, you know, no creature comforts and no people to keep her company. Uh, she's just defending this book for all of time. Um, and I'm pretty sure she's been completely forgotten by everybody who has the authority to relieve her of this duty. So, yep. um, but you know what, uh, in the moment where it matters, she comes through and, uh, she helps us on our way. So, uh, Impaz, we really do appreciate you. Um, I, I do think it's very interesting I love when Impa, variations of Impa, show up in Zelda games. Sure. And I kind of just wish that this had been a new Impa. Yeah. Like, I wish that they had just been like, let's, this not, is Impa. let's not screw around with it. This is, is it. Is it not Impa? It's Impaz. I feel like it's just Impa. <laughs> I mean, yes. But also. But also the worst Impa in the whole series. Right. That's the Also, thing. yes. Like, I mean, <clears throat> Impa is is typically a more action oriented character. Right. And, and the, so the fact that this character mentions who we're supposed to believe is Impa, the great one who built the village by yeah. name, like this, this Impa is talking about like white haired bodysuit ninja lady Impa from for Ocarina sure. of Time. For sure. Right? For sure. And so in my mind, I'm, I'm not treating her the same way because she's explicitly mentioning this other character. And anyway, um, but uh, regardless of that, uh, Impaz, you know, you you took one for the whole team. Um, <laughs> you don't seem like you have a lot of years left, so we we do appreciate your sacrifice. But she's got a lot of cat friends. Yeah, but she deserved to be escorted to Kakariko Village. Yes, absolutely, she did. Yeah, so she wouldn't be alone in massacre town. Yeah, uh, Impaz Impaz needs a spa day in the hot springs. Seriously, yeah, like get that lady like a nice meal and. I don't know. Take her to the bingo club. Like yep. something. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> How about you, Matt? Uh, I'm going to go with Shad uh, just because, man, I really like this guy. He is enthusiastic. He's actually helpful. He sticks around for the whole journey. And then he gives up on his life's dream and just pieces out just to let you go and be the hero and do what you need to do. Uh, totally selfless. Totally not wrapped up in his own uh laurels or getting any recognition he's just here he's just here for the journey man he's just here for knowledge's sake and enjoying the ride and uh it seems like it seems like a cool dude uh who i would love to uh half listen to as he spills all of his decades worth of theories about the sky people while i just kind of nod and say "Uh uh-huh uh-huh yeah every once in a while I do appreciate Shad hanging around for longer than five minutes in yeah. his side quest. For sure. <laughs> so. Best member of the Hyrule White Lotus. Yes. Um, well done on you, Shad. Like you were you were ready to go to the bitter end and we just didn't let you. <laughs> Which was really rude. <laughs> just was, I feel bad for him. I hope he gets to meet. He has Uka. a good showing in the uh, the Twilight Princess manga. Well, who doesn't? Apparently for you to get there. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, we 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 need to read that soon. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's our next slate of bonus content. We've got to watch five more episodes of the freaking cartoon first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, cool. All right. Well, I believe that brings us into part six, which is our final thoughts, where we let Matt do the thing that surprises him every week. And Didn't surprise me this week. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. And wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do. 
Uh, so we start this section of game getting back into the rhythm of having some things to do in between dungeons. We uh, help our good friend and possible romantic interest, Ilya, uh, regain her memory at last with the help of some friendly Gorons. Uh, we traverse a deserted town and do some uh, sheriffy shootout nonsense with some Bulbin uh, ne'er-do-wells. We move on, uh, collect... Uh, those would be Bulblins. Bulblin ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> Good lord. I'm trying, okay? I didn't even know Bulblins existed before this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> some Bulblin ne'er-do-wells. Uh, move on into some collecting of sky people uh, relics and things and move on and get shot out of a cannon into the city in the sky where we uh, traverse a very large uh, dungeon that has a lot of friction and it's uh, maneuvering through the dungeon but culminating and a truly fantastic boss fight that is grand in spectacle and uh, no shortage of fun. Uh, all in all, looking forward to moving on to the finale section of the game next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a dungeon that felt like getting dragged over carpet for half a mile. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yes. About that much friction. <laughs> yes, Yep. <laughs> static electricity and all. <laughs> Well done, as always, Matt. That brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms Rundown. We will, of course, be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown as we get into the endgame of Twilight Princess and start coming to some climactic experiences. Yay! With a lot we of like our, climactic experiences. With a lot of our main characters. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I do just want to check back in with something that I was mentioning earlier today. One, uh, yes, I was correct. The poll for Season 11 uh, voting closes at... uh, The poll for season 11 voting closes on our Patreon on November 29th at 11.59 p.m. As of the time of this recording, Minish Cap has a commanding lead with 46 percent with a second place going to Spirit Tracks at 29 percent. Oracle of Seasons and Ages double feature is at 20 percent and Hyper Light Drifter, which is our Zelda like option is uh, pretty far behind at 6%. We had a few people say that they would have preferred Tunic in that option, but uh, to be completely honest, I feel like it wouldn't have won anyway. Anyway, Still uh, a lot of good Zelda to play. So right now it's looking like Minish Cap, and uh, you know what? I wouldn't hate that. Wouldn't hate it at all. Yeah. Do Um, we have a way to play it? It's on Switch. Yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, oh, that makes that so much easier. Yeah, we. I think we, with the exception of this game that we're currently playing, I think the Switch has actually now come through as like, yeah, I've pretty much got everything you need from here on out. There you go. Except for Spirit Tracks. Except for Spirit Tracks. Yeah. You can play Majora's Mask on it. It's the original N64 version. You can. That's what you're going to do, right? That is what I'm going to do. Okay, cool. You need to You need to really try and get yourself one of the um, controllers. One of the N64 Nintendo online Ooh, controllers. That's a really good idea. Um, I think that you would really enjoy the experience a lot more if you did it that yeah, way. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. The the N64 port controls for Switch are kind of clunky and not yeah, great. Yeah, they're not great. Max, do you have any of those? Have you been getting any of the NES, Super NES, N64, like the special ones they release for the subscribers? I have not because any game I would care enough to play that way on the Switch, I can probably play on its original one still yeah fair so, enough okay it, the perks i guess of being a hoarder 
games. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, cool. Uh, I don't think we really have anything else we need to get into before the end of this. We good, Matt? No, let's do it. Okay, awesome. Max, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, obviously, we're not going to catch up with you again before the end of this season. Um, whatever season 11 is, currently Minish Cap, we'll, uh, you know, we'll get you back on for that. I do have one question before we go. Um, having replayed this game for the first time in a little while, is Twilight Princess climbing in your own personal esteem? Um, I, like, I know that we have not gotten to the end game yet. You know, we've still got final boss battles and all that stuff to do. But uh, I don't know. Are you finding anything new and interesting here? Yeah, I think I'm I think I am appreciating it more uh, than I expected to. Um, I'm not sure that it's like bumping anything down on a, a ranking if I even had such a thing, which I don't, but, uh, but it's, it's, I'm enjoying it a lot and more than I expected to. I think that sounds about like where we're at as well. Right, Matt? Yeah, pretty much. Cool. Uh, and as always, Max at Hyrule interviews, right on social media platforms. Yep. Cool. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Blue Sky. Cool. Definitely go check all that out. Um, Like we say, every time Max is on, for all the excellent quotes that he drops during the duration of these episodes, he's got 100 more um, that are just there for you to go and do your own research on at your leisure. So um, highly recommend you giving him the follow because he's doing absolutely excellent work. Um, Can't wait to catch up with you again sometime soon, Max. It's been a pleasure as always. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Three times in a season. We were trying to figure out earlier if this was a record for you. I don't I I feel like you have been on the show three times in a season prior to now, but I would have to go back and like hmm. verify that. Um I think this is I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this might be the first time. Maybe I'll research that. We'll 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 see. I don't know. Oh uh, if you count um the double season with Zelda one and two. Uh, I do count that and so that would have been maybe three or four yeah. times in that season. You know, I think a lot of people would still say that that was our best season to date. It's definitely up there. I want to go re-listen to it sometime soon. Yeah, same. Like I don't go back and re-listen to our backlog all that often, but, uh, that one, I don't know. I'm curious. That's where we started getting out of control with our length. Like right now, <laughs> which is crazy because those games <laughs> those are, are the small. shortest games. They're yeah. not big games. <laughs> oh man. Well, regardless, uh, we have the pod that we have now, and I'm loving it. Indeed. All right. Well, y'all, if you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy. Hi, Leans. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sacredrealmspod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Twilight Princess Chapter 10. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Twilight Princess can be played in its original form on the Nintendo GameCube or the Nintendo Wii. Its HD remaster can be played on the Nintendo Wii U, and it can be emulated on a variety of services. But please, we ask that you don't do that unless you legally own the version of the game that you're emulating. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We'll catch you all next time.
Sacred Realms is an independent, listener-supported podcast, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Business operations are handled by Matt Willoughby. Our music is generously provided by Darknuck and is available to listen to on Spotify. Finally, we'd like to thank Nintendo for continuing to create such exceptional and innovative experiences. 